Welcome everyone to episode one of season two of Recreational Thinking with Yogesh Routh. Our guests today are Tucker Warner, Tom Kalachi, and Marcus Luna. Remember that order, it's arbitrary, but it'll be consistent throughout the game. So if we could now go in that order and each of you briefly state where you're Skyping from and approximately one sentence about yourself, starting with Tucker. Sure. Hi, I'm Tucker. Uh, This is my second appearance on this great program. I'm Skyping in from the Hartford, Connecticut area. And one sentence about myself, I suppose. Currently, I'm working for a fantasy sports company after a good five to six years in sports blogging. So that's, you know, my so far. All right. Cool. Tom? Hi, I'm Tom Colacci. I'm from London originally, but I'm Skyping in from lovely Los Angeles, California right now, where the weather is beautiful. And I work at a large streaming service. All right. And uh, Marcus. Hi, I'm Marcus Luna. First time on the program. I, I'm Skyping from San Diego, California. One sense about myself, I work for a medical device company. All right. Yeah. So Tucker and Tom are veterans of the program. I'm currently editing Tucker's episode. It'll be out soon. Uh, and Tom's is a bit later in the season. But I don't think that'll give them any huge advantage over Marcus. But, you know, just to be sure we're all clear on the rules and for the listeners as well, I'll go over them right now. This game is in four rounds, one individual and three specialists. The first round I call the three R's round. It allows me to reduce, reuse and recycle prior material. These questions, I used to call them a warm up, but then people complained that that made them seem like they'd be easy. And in fact, they're hard. So this is a hard warm up, let's call it. Each of these questions will be worth a tenth of a point, mainly so they can serve as tiebreakers if necessary. It's only been necessary once so far. So for this round only, you will answer as individuals. So if directed at misses, it'll go to the second, then the third if both of them miss. So the further back you are, less of a direct shot you have, but the more time you have to think and some potential answers could be taken off the table. And we'll rotate so each of you gets to answer three questions in first position, three in second position, three in third. And then the rules will change and I will explain those new rules when that happens. So I'll start out again with just a general reminder to talk through your thinking process. Don't internalize your thoughts. Share any interesting connections or thoughts you have. Don't just talk for the sake of talking, though. All right, so now we will begin with Tucker in first position on question one. Is everyone ready? Yes. All right, so this goes first to Tucker. British musician, music producer, and composer Isabella Summers, who provided some of the score for the 2020 Hulu miniseries Little Fires Everywhere, has very little in common with comedian Burt Kreischer. For one thing, she generally keeps her shirt on in public, as far as I know. (laughs) However, they do share what nickname, which in Summer's case was bestowed upon her by a redheaded friend. So, uh... And so, yeah, if you uh, wait a second, the question will show up in chat. This is something I wasn't doing when Tucker first appeared, but I'm doing it now. It seems to help people to be able to look at the question. Yes, that does, actually, a lot. That's wonderful. Thank you. Um, <laughs> this is a very big difference from my first appearance. In fact, <laughs> not that it would have helped my score. So I don't... I do know... Bert Kreischer. I know less about Isabella Summers. I, I don't want to take too long thinking on what I'm going to have as a, a wild guess, but one of the things I know about Bert Kreischer is that he served as the inspiration for like a frat house movie character. So I'm going to say the nickname, perhaps Van Wilder for both of them, because I'm pretty sure that was the movie based on Bert Kreischer. So you're locking in Van Wilder? Yes. All right. I believe that is correct about Burt Kreischer. There was an article about him that called him like the, oh, I forget what exactly moniker it gave him, but it did inspire the movie about Van Wilder, though he wasn't officially credited and they didn't like pay him for his life rights or anything. So that's a good guess, but not correct. So I'll pass the question to Tom. 
yeah, I also know nothing about Isabella Summers, so I'm going to keep plugging the same redheaded frat movie type line, and I'm going to say Shermanator. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good guess, not correct. So, Marcus? Um, I'm same boat. I don't know this Isabella Summers. I know some of Burt Kreischer's stand-up. Let's see. So it's by a redheaded friend. So I'm thinking it might be hair color related, but that doesn't make sense. I was going to keep going on the frat movie thing, and I believe Will Ferrell's character was Tank in old school, so I'll say Tank. All right, yeah, I guess you all were uh, maybe a little uh, distracted away from the music part of the question. Because if you thought about, you know, popular musicians with red hair, in this case, her childhood friend who gave her that nickname was named Florence Welch, and she now plays keyboards in her band, and so her nickname is The Machine. Oh. And, uh, yeah. That is from Burt Kreischer's stand-up. He's The Machine because he was on that Russian train thing, I think. Right. <laughs> yes, hence the name of their group, Florence and The Machine. Yeah, good one. <laughs> you have given me Pat Burrell, maybe, for the, uh, the San Francisco Giants connection, but that's kind of a deep cut for <laughs> all but the biggest baseball fans, I think. Yeah, or Brian Wilson, I guess. Yes, yeah. <laughs> But don't worry, there'll be plenty of baseball content for you later. Okay. <laughs> All right, question two, now starting with Tom. A very American question for our non-American. Uh, a melodramatic Scottish poem by Thomas Campbell about an alleged 1788 massacre of Patriot soldiers during the American Revolution is the most likely source of which U.S. state's name? Okay. So the massacre was in 1788... So the poem was later, so the state was probably even later. So it's probably nothing on the East Coast, because this is something that probably got statehood in the, like, I don't know, 1840s about then. Sure. Poem. Oh, no, it's just the source. It doesn't say that it shares the name with the poem. Uh, I feel like this is something I should have looked up, and I never have, and I don't know why... Arkansas is called Arkansas, but I'll guess Arkansas. All right, good guess. If I were more alert, I could come up with some joke about it being the R of Kansas or something. But yeah, that doesn't really work. So, so I'll just pass it over to who's next, Marcus. Yeah, I definitely don't know this poem. I'm trying to think of a state name that could be kind of poetic. Kind of on Tom's logic that's probably something in the 19th century. Yeah, I guess it's kind of silly here, but I'm thinking maybe because it starts with an O, Oklahoma. <laughs> Oh no, a massacre, Oklahoma. <laughs> it's giving me flashbacks to the OK Oklahoma City guesses from uh, the first episode. All right, but yes, good guess, but not correct. So, Tucker? All right, so if I'm thinking of a melodramatic poem about a massacre, one thing that I would think might be described is the blood, perhaps. is certainly the most visually striking thing you could see in a massacre. So I don't know how much overlap there is between the Scottish poets and the Spanish language, but my first thought was Colorado, so I'm going to lock that in. All right, I see, I see your logic. Colorado means red or ruddy or reddish in Spanish. So it's a good guess, and you are geographically the closest out of everyone as this alleged massacre took place in the Wyoming Valley of Pennsylvania and inspired a poem called Gertrude of Wyoming. And so, of course, the state would be Wyoming. All right. Next question starts with Marcus in first position. 
Alexandra Sean Pettifer, better known under her pre-marriage name, Tiggy Leg Bork, was appointed a member of the Royal Victorian Order in the 2001 New Year's Honours, primarily due to her service between 1993 and 1999 in what profession? From 1997 onward, she has been the focus of numerous sinister conspiracy theories. So, I might be helping the other guys out here, especially Tom, seeing he's from England. But 97 makes me think she was, I think that's when Diana died. But what would, so I guess I'm, I'm kind of thinking something with Diana. So Diana was always so big in helping unfortunate people across the world. So something like a diplomat. Is that what you're locking in? Yeah, I'm locking a diplomat. All right. Yeah, there is a reason that Tom is in third position on this one. Equalizes the playing field a bit. So I'll pass it to Tucker. All right. So, um, huh. When you said sinister conspiracy theories, I wanted to take that ultra literally and say she's the president of the Worldwide Left-Handers Association or something like that. But I I do like the track that Marcus was on, so I'm just going to run with that. As far as conspiracy theories with regards to Diana's death, I want to say that there was one involving paparazzi. So I'll say she was a photographer. All right. Good guess. I don't know how many paparazzi get MVOs, but... The tablets are pretty big. What can I say? (laughs) All right. Tom? Yeah, I feel like people are on the right lines here. And I can't quite think what it was. Something long-time service. Um, Was she Diana's driver? I'll say driver. Sorry, I I think I know there's a guy who was the driver, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least at that time, it was Henri Paul. He was referred to as in news reports. But yeah, the dates given are 93 to 99. So that actually, you know, should have tipped me off. It was maybe something short term, but very important. And since it continued after Diana's death, that it was maybe more related to Prince Charles and his family. But she was the nanny to Princess William and Harry. Mm. Yeah. What did she do in relation? Was she in the car crash or something? No, it's just, it was, she she provoked a lot of jealousy from Diana, and there were, you know, various rumors about her supposedly being in a relationship with Charles and about Diana being gotten out of the way in order to clear the path for that. There's no real evidence behind them, but uh, there have been theories circulated, certainly, uh, about... Yeah, that Charles had her and Camilla at the same time? (laughs) Yeah, or that, like, Camilla was, like, a front, and it was really, you know, he was really interested. I think the tabloids even reported that she supposedly had aborted his child, which, to be clear, there is absolutely zero evidence for. Wow, um, tabloids, man. Pretty crazy stuff. Yes. All right. I believe Tucker is in first position for this next one. Due to it being invented and sold by the company of... Eugène Rimmel, the word for what in several European and Mediterranean languages is Rimmel. Ooh, interesting. So this is always the type of question where my answer ends up being nothing resembling what the actual answer is. Um, And so right now I have vague guesses in a few different directions invented and sold by the company to me, this sounds like it must be like a specific food product that must uh, like more of like a like a confection, perhaps something that would have been invented by a specific company. And uh, that's just <laughs> tough for me to narrow down. If uh, you guys have seen my learned league scores on food and drink, this is not my area of expertise. So I'm at least hoping I'm on the right track and not embarrassing myself here in the interests of <laughs> my low percentage guess here, not slowing the game down too much. 
the word for what? It's got to be something singular. So hmm. this is probably hmm. well, I second guessed my wild guess. And that's never good. I'm going to say cotton candy. It doesn't make much sense, but I, I'll let you guys have a stab at it. <laughs> All right. Yeah, as you said, that was a low percentage guess. So I'll just pass it to Tom. I have two guesses I'm turning over, both of which are quite low percentage. One, there was a Learned League question I got wrong this past season about like an Austrian company. And I thought it was Red Bull because I was the only Austrian company I knew. And then it made glasses. So it could be that. But then Rimmel London, I remember like there used to be ads for that. And that was like a makeup brand. So that's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say makeup. All right. I will pass it to Marcus. Okay. So it's not makeup, but it's not cotton candy. Uh, let's see. I don't know why I'm thinking this. So I'm just going to blurt it out. I, I really can't, I don't think, discuss this further and get more confident in anything else. For some reason, Rimmel reminds me of watches. I don't, I think a lot of things can remind me of watch brands. So. Might be a horrible guess here, but I'm going to say watches. final answer. All right. So this isn't something I've done before, but I guess I've had it in my pocket as a potential thing I might do as a host. I'm going to pass this question back to Tom, and I'm going to give him one chance to refine his guess. So, okay. Is it is it lipstick specifically? All right. So, uh, yeah, last time you were on, you mentioned to me afterwards that one question you missed, your girlfriend had gotten immediately when you asked it to her later. And this is, again, a question that female listeners might have an advantage on. But you did, in fact, point out Rimmel London is a very you know, famous cosmetics house in London. So, yeah, you were definitely on the right track with cosmetics. But Rimmel, specifically, that word refers to mascara. Uh, close. Very close. All right. The next question starts with Tom in first position. This man co-authored a 2016 paper in the peer-reviewed journal Computers and Graphics, which makes him one of the few people in the world with an Erdos Bacon number lower than mine. He also founded Gishwesh, billed as the world's largest scavenger hunt in order to raise money for his nonprofit, Random Acts. So name this multi-talented actor, a familiar face on the CW network, who despite his rugged good looks might be described by his fans as angelic. <sighs> Gish West, great scavenger hunt, great international scavenger hunt. I'll, I'll just tell you if it helps. I believe that stands for greatest internet scavenger hunt the world has ever seen. All right. All right. <laughs> the angelics a clue that I am not really registering properly. I'm trying to think what CW shows I know. <laughs> My first thought was Tom Ellis, but that's not the CW show. Um, oh, what are these? Cole Sprouse. Interesting guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see where you came from with that, but I'll pass it to Marcus. So as soon as you said Angelic, I thought of a guy, but the show he was on CW, I think was on CW4, so it's older, so I don't know if it's appropriate. It's kind of one of those things where it's in my head so much, pounding on my head, I really can't deviate away from thinking of anything else. So I'm just going to guess this suit to the show Angel and say David Boreanaz. Uh, I think you cut out slightly there, but I assume you're going for David Boreanaz? Yeah, I said David Boreanaz, yep. All right, good guess. I see your logic there, but not correct, so I'll pass it to Tucker. I think Angel was entirely WB pre-merger, so as soon as you said <laughs> Yeah, it's tough. Um, so I... As soon as you said Angelic, there was a specific character in my head. And this isn't a show I watched very often, but I think you're going for 
the character of, and I'll probably butcher the exact name, but Castiel or something like that on Supernatural, who I believe is played by Misha Collins. So that's going to be my guess. So you're locking in Misha Collins? Yeah, and I'm hoping I got the names right. All right. Yeah, so Supernatural did, in fact, begin on the WB network, but it survived the merger. And in fact, I believe it's still airing new episodes, although this current season is supposed to be its last. But the character on it, who is an angel, as you said, Castiel, is played by Misha Collins. And that is the correct answer. Mm, Points. (laughs) First points of the day. Yeah, I believe that is the first entry on the scoreboard. Yes. (laughs) I'll take it. All right. Because, yeah, we, we've only had one complete blank on this round back in episode four, and I'm really trying to not have that happen any other times. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm coming back then. I did pretty bad. <laughs> okay, next one, starting with, uh, who are we on now? Marcus in first position. Okay, this is a short question. Because they lack a Karina, what is the most notable shared characteristic of all ratites? Because they lack a Karina. You know, I see Karina, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. It immediately thinks of Ocarina of Time, uh, so I'm just trying to figure what on the Ocarina this might be referring to. So I'm going to take a guess that, especially since the cornea is in the eye, might be a root common thing here. I'm going to say all rat tights are blind. Mm, good guess, but not quite correct here, so I'll pass to Tucker. So... <laughs> I recognize where you've used this question before recently, Yokes, because I have read your super hard quizzes. Unfortunately, I'm not somebody who remembers the answers to those very frequently, or I suppose fortunately for perhaps Tom here and very unfortunately for me. Um, So I don't want to give away too much. I have a vague sense of what it is, but I'm not going to be able to narrow it down enough. My recall on this is not going to be right. So I'm going to say they all lack... mm, Going to say... Yeah, shoot. I'll say a nose. All right. Yeah. Interesting uh, mental image that calls up. Yeah, like Voldemort is a rat type, for example, you know. <laughs> there we go. All right, Tom? No, I do not read the uh, super hard quizzes. They're too super hard. Um, so I'm going for a different etymology where Karina sounds a bit like the terminology for heart. So maybe they all lack a heart. Oh, maybe they haven't met the right person yet. <laughs> <laughs> So actually, if you go back to, not even not just Super Hard Quiz, if you go back to previous episodes of this podcast, even the released ones back in episode two, I discussed Ophelia Lovebond's character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, whose name is Karina. And I pointed out at that point that it is Latin for keel, hence it's actually a constellation that used to be part of Argo Navis. But in terms of what you can't do if you don't have a keel, well, obviously you can't sail. But I think you all figured out that this was in kind of the animal kingdom we're talking about. And there aren't really animals that sail anyway, except for the animals that sail through the air, which are birds. But if you lack, yeah, if you lack a carina, which is essentially the bone that kind of stabilizes birds during flight, then you cannot fly. And so the ratites, the emu, cassowary, ostrich, rhea, and kiwi, these are the birds that cannot fly. Well, now I remember. Uh, <laughs> oh, that one was gettable. Bone that stabilizes the wing. <laughs> All right. So the last cycle of these, uh, one more for each of you in first position. So we'll start again with Tucker. Back in 1916, when the campus of the University of Texas at El Paso was rebuilt following a fire, its buildings were intentionally modeled on the Zong architecture of what nation? 
In recognition of its odd but unmistakable ties to UTEP, in 2008, this nation's prince, Jigyel Ugyan Wangchuk, gifted to the university a full-sized Lakang temple that currently sits in UTEP Centennial Plaza. Wow, I was um, <laughs> hoping to get some hints from the different names here once I saw them spelled out, and they're sending me in a few different directions, which... Um, <laughs> It seems like the etymology might be from a couple different languages here, which unfortunately is not helping me. I could be overlooking something. Again, song architecture. That, I feel like I don't see the DZ leading combination in too many languages, which makes me think this might be hmm, odd but unmistakable ties to UTEP. Goodness. So I, uh, I'm thinking... This is probably Eastern Europe at this point. I'm going to, I feel like if it was like a, a more, like a, a larger country, I probably would have heard at least one of these names before and be able to recognize them. But in lieu of anything else, I'm going to say, ugh, I will say Albania. Hmm. Interesting guess. I've t- Tom. Yeah. <laughs> is this Bhutan? Did you want to say anything more about where that was coming from or? Uh, the names just look Bhutanese to me, and it's a reasonable guess that I do not have anything better to guess. But I'm I'm not feeling too bad about this one. This is my favorite guess of the day. Right. Do, you, do you remember what the uh, language spoken in Bhutan is called? Uh, I thought it was just called Bhutanese. Well, I mean, it might be, but the kind of the more native name for it is Zongka. So that's another oh. place where you see that. DZ. If this were asked to me, I'm, I would have an unfair advantage because I actually knew in college three of the sisters of Prince Jigyel Ogyen Wangchuk. <laughs> wow. So in total, there's five. At the time, the king had ten children, five male and five female, with four different wives who were all sisters. So I once asked one of them, like, uh, you know, your sister, isn't she also your cousin? And she was like, uh, I never thought of it that way, but yes, I guess she is. <laughs> But yeah, I also asked her once if she'd ever seen a certain Eddie Murphy movie. And she was, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, now, of course, yeah, the king has given way to his son, who would be the brother of Prince Jigel Ugyen Wangchuk. But yes, they are the royal family of Bhutan. Wow, very good. What country is the footballer Edin Dzeko from? Because that's why I was thinking. Bosnia. Oh, he's Bosnian. Okay, that's, yeah. Yeah, I, I personally could not have answered that question, but... Yeah. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. Tom now in first position on this question. Sylvia Pankhurst, a lifelong socialist slash anti-fascist activist and the daughter of suffragette leader Emmeline Pankhurst, is likely the only white person buried in the churchyard of Holy Trinity Cathedral in what world capital? Zoinks. Uh, I, was, I was doing quite well with the Pankhursts. So I was like, yes, I, I know who these are. And, um, but... Likely the only white person. So, but still a Christian nation. Oh, actually, not necessarily, but probably. So I'm thinking somewhere in the Caribbean. Unless it's somewhere in like, uh, unless it's another question about the sort of Himalayan area. But no, I'm, I, I think it's probably going to be in the Caribbean. So the only white person. Uh, Port-au-Prince. What was your guess? Port-au-Prince. In Haiti is what you're going for? Yes. All right. Good guess, but not correct. So this goes to Marcus next. 
So I immediately thought of something that of uh, Liberia, due to its anti-slavery history, which could tie into socialist anti-fascism. So I'm just going to throw it out there, Monrovia. Very good guess. I definitely see your logic there, but not correct. So this goes to, <laughs> goes to talk. Yeah, uh, my thought was also Liberia. So since it was wrong, thank you for taking it off. Um, I, I have to feel that this is, I do feel like this is probably located in Africa. I suppose that might be a Dutch last name too. So I was thinking perhaps the Dutch colonial empire, but there's not a specific city that rings out to me there. I'm going to take a stab and say Freetown. Yeah, so so the Pankhurst family was definitely English, as Tom would know. But yeah, her daughters ended up going all in different directions. One of them, I think, ended up in California, was involved with some fringe religious movement. Another one went to Australia and somehow founded or was a founder of both the Communist Party and the primary far-right Nationalist Party. She switched ideologies at some point. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Her other daughter became very, I guess, enamored of a certain world leader and wanted to help him out in his struggle against fascist Italy, which was trying to take over his nation. Yes, yes. And so she spent much of her life near the... Uh, freeze. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say give him a minute in case he was picking up our mics, but uh, <laughs> we did have a freeze situation there. <laughs> He's going to say Ali Sababa, right? I mean... I think so, yeah. yeah let's see if I can... Oh, yeah, let me see if I could. I don't have a. Oh, you froze, Yogesh. Yeah, I had an internet issue. It's okay, so let, let's rewind. Okay, so I just had given the answer. So anything you were going to say after that, just say it again so the recording can hear it. Did you guys hear the answer? Did I freeze before giving the answer? Yes, just before, I think. The uh, okay, you can, all, you can all hear me now, though, right? Yes. yes. So as I said, she became an amateur of a certain historical figure who was fighting the fascist armies of Italy. And so she spent much of her life near Haile Selassie, and she was buried in Addis Ababa. Yep, mm -hmm. that makes sense. <laughs> All right, now the final question of this three hours round will begin with Marcus. This American Life Story by Andrea Morningstar called Who Put the Pistol in Epistolary tells the true story of how a 10-year-old girl living in small-town Michigan became unlikely pen pals with which dictator? Controversially, she twice visited this dictator in his home country before it was invaded by the United States. I've heard of this story before. I just can't can't put together the people. <laughs> uh, invaded by the United States does help. Put the pistol in a pistol area. That's not helping me. I I trying to think of I can't remember something in the news about a story about a pen pal meeting a dictator. My first thought was Latin America because we. Well, I should say, yeah, because the United States tended to invade a lot of Latin America, but uh, I'm actually gonna, I'm actually gonna throw out Saddam Hussein as my guess, final answer. All right, that's an interesting guess. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense because that is a country that was invaded. But yeah, yeah, Tucker, were you on your phone? Uh, oh no. Okay, yeah, just uh, to the um. My yeah. phone over my shoulder on the table, just oh. there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, just again, I mean, if I were really being strict about enforcing things, I would require everyone to have their hands in view at all times, the way like Mimir's well and OQL and everyone does, but yeah. I mean, yeah, 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 sorry, I, I was messing with the settings on my audio box over here. I think our scores are enough evidence that we're not cheating, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you're spooling until the next round, and then, then we'll be... <laughs> yeah. Um, Fair enough. Okay, yeah, so who was it? Marcus had just went to Tucker now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, unfortunately for, well, a lot of things, 
countries invaded by the United States doesn't really narrow down this question a whole lot. So really, this could just be most dictators, in fact. But also, what a great title for the story, I have to say. That's true. Yeah. Um, at the same time, like the, this does make it sound like it's within recent memory, I would say. Like I, I'd say in the past 60 years or so, like post-World War II. And I was also thinking Latin America. And I, I don't remember a specific invasion here, but I'm going to guess Trujillo. All right. So you, you've. I remember last time you played, there was a question about Trujillo, and I think you said. Oh, there was. <laughs> so since then, you've learned who he was, which is good. My podcast was education. <laughs> All there right. Was a learning thing the other day. What did you say? There was a learning question about Trujillo the other day. I don't know if it was in the. It was the president's one or the. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. So now I think Tom is the only is the to finish out the round. So unlike you two, I'm struggling to think of dictators that have been overthrown by America. So my history is a bit shaky, unfortunately. But I'm thinking two things. I'm thinking Reagan famously invaded Grenada, but I feel like that was notable because it wasn't a dictatorship. And then I wouldn't, it could be like somewhere in the Balkans, but I wouldn't say like, you'd say the US invaded there necessarily it's like more of a peacekeeping effort so then i'm back to latin america and us didn't overthrow pinochet or peron or any of the brazilian ones so i'm gonna say ortega all right yeah i think ortega is still in power in nicaragua or he, he wasn't for a while but he came back oh um can i take another guess i i think i may have thought of the story is it noriega so yeah, you all went to Latin America, but the one who was actually deposed, the operation to depose him was called Operation Just Cause, which I always thought, I think they wanted it to sound like they were doing it in a just cause, but really it sounds more like, why are we invading and deposing their leader? Just cause. <laughs> yeah. But yes, it was Manuel Noriega. Ah, yeah, sadly, no points on that. Yes, yeah, I, I might have overthought that, actually. <laughs> I believe we end that round with Tucker at 0.1 points, Tom 0.1, and Marcus 0.0. Some real SNL celebrity Jeopardy scores right here. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That was, like I said, mainly just a warm-up. Now we get into the main game, starting with the not-all-that-hard round. So in this round and all successive rounds, if you will get three specialist questions related to your categories, not intended to be a fair or comprehensive test of your knowledge of them. They may relate directly or obliquely. To keep everyone on their toes, I won't reveal the categories at first. So before you can answer, your opponents will get to work together to try and steal the points from you. You'll only get a chance to answer for points if your opponents miss. Sometimes I might pass it over to you without telling you if they've missed, in which case you should just act as though they got it wrong, because if they got it right, you're not getting any points anyway. Also, if you're still talking like 30 seconds after I passed it over to you, then your opponents almost certainly got it wrong, because I'm not doing this to like hang people out to dry. (laughs) So there may be, in some cases, some bonuses. If your question gets stolen from you, you might be able to answer a question for half the points of the steal. That's kind of irregularly sprinkled throughout the game, so they won't happen every time you get stolen from, most likely. And it's mainly just to give people who get stolen from a chance to show off knowledge and to give listeners a few more questions to enjoy. And the bonuses will be related to the question. They won't always fit into the same category or be at the same level of difficulty. 
And I think that's it. So now and for the rest of the game, also remember that the points will go to both stealers if a question is stolen, even if only one knows the answer. So these questions are not all that hard. They'll be worth two points, of the ste- that's, doesn't, which doesn't mean that they're easy. They're just not all that hard. Allegedly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, guess level not hard is really hard. <laughs> all right. But I, I tried to build in some maybe some extra hints for these that will not be present in later questions. All right, so uh, these questions are worth two points as a steal, one point as a specialist, and we will begin with Tom and Marcus trying to steal from Tucker. Everyone ready? Yes. All right, so now Tom and Marcus to steal from Tucker. Frozen food magnate Robert E. Rich Jr. has long attempted to bring a Major League Baseball team to his hometown, and in 2020, he finally got his wish, sort of, when the Toronto Blue Jays relocated to Solon Field in what city of approximately 250,000 near the U.S.-Canada border? Uh, I definitely know this one, Tom. Because are you did you are you following baseball this season? Me. Yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> like, this is all me. Because um, the Blue Jays couldn't play in Canada because of COVID. Canada didn't want all the American teams to come into Canada, so they played in their AAA ballpark in Buffalo, New York. All right. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree. Yeah, good stuff. <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> Okay, so you locked in Buffalo, New York, and that is the correct answer. Very good. Thanks for the help, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime. Anytime, mate. (laughs) All right. Tucker and Marcus now to steal from Tom. Born in Germany, Jochen Rindt was representing Austria when he won the 1970 Formula One World Drivers' Championship. What was the most strikingly unique thing about the way he won that championship? I know you're... You're a, you work in sports, and I'm pretty good at sports, as, like with the Buffalo question, but I don't really follow Formula One, mm-hmm. and I don't, especially old Formula One. Yeah. Uh-oh. No, I'm originally from the South. Our car racing is NASCAR, so uh, you, you fancy Formula One and their strategies and class. That's not something I'm aware of. So, I'm just, <laughs> so how could you, let's just think, how could you wackily win a race? Um so one thing that I've seen, and I mean, this is more, you know, just from NASCAR, and I don't know if it works the same way in terms of physics with F1 or IndyCars, but I've seen drivers win races facing backward before. They got turned around as the result of a crash. Yeah. So that's one thought. If there's any other unique ways about, well, it's the World Drivers' Championship, though, too. So I suppose that if it's the season-long thing rather than an entire race, then I guess it could be, too. So I don't know. There's also the thing where they like a guy never leads a single lap and wins, but that's kind of I don't know how unique that is. That probably happens. It's not super unique. Um, yeah. And if that is an entire season, you'd have to figure that they would have had to win at some point. Yeah. One other thought I had is that could it be that perhaps he died in a crash before the season ended, so it was a posthumous championship? Yeah, it could be because they always have replacement drivers, right? And that it still counts towards the same team. I mean. Yeah, and- and if you still get the points over the course of the year, I would imagine that you'd still win the championship. So so that's another thought. If you have anything else, I'm yeah, happy no, to hear. And So is this, are we agreeing that this is kind of like um like how NASCAR has the sprint for the, the chase for the cup or whatever? Yeah, that, that would what, be the best guess here. Okay, so I don't want to take up too much time. So let's, I think that's, let's do, I think let's do that one though, the posthumous one. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll say that he won the championship after he died. All right, you locked in, he won the championship after he died? Tom, is that correct? That is absolutely correct. Poor man. Right. Oh, nice. Wow, he called that well. Nice. Nice, Tucker. Nice. I had my hand over my face from the beginning, but that was a very good poker face from Tom. (laughs) 
I was watching when you guys said it to see if he would give anything away, and no, he held his expression completely. Uh, <laughs> I think if the story is right, he was racing at Monza in Italy, which is the most high-speed track, and he had taken some wing off his car to make the car go faster, but then you can control it less well. And then, yeah, I think he had a massive crash at like one of the famous corners. All right. So I actually was about to ask you a bonus about where his crash occurred. <laughs> we had no chance on that. Yeah. Yes. Maybe yeah, I should ask. Play Tom if you want. I, if he's if he could have stolen that, because I don't think Nier Tucker ever got to Monza. Well, I mean that question would have been directed only at Tom, but he just proved right. that he knew the answer. So. Yes. <laughs> if I if uh, the other two steal a question from me, I'm just going to say everything else I know about it in hopes I can pick up a bonus too. <laughs> Well, it'll be good content regardless. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unless you say something that's wrong, and I'll have to tape in a message afterwards saying, you know, yes. actually. <laughs> future Rogesh will have to, uh, future Yogesh, excuse me, will have to step in. Rogesh. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I can't speak sometimes. Great for podcasting. It, it's very common for my name to be mispronounced that way, particularly by old white men. <laughs> and I'm a young white man, so, you know, I... Yeah. <laughs> It's certainly not the worst way my name has been butchered, so I've le- I've become very uh, inured to, the, to that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so now we are on Tom and Tucker to steal from Marcus. Johan Johansson scores for the Denis Villeneuve films Prisoner, Sicario, and Arrival all featured his fellow Icelander, Hildur Gudnadotter, as solo cellist. Johansson and Gudna Dottir then collaborated on the score of the 2018 film Mary Magdalene. Johansson sadly passed away in 2018, leaving Gudna Dottir to pick up the composing mantle and by herself win an Oscar for one of 2019's most popular and acclaimed movies and a primetime Emmy for one of 2019's most popular and acclaimed TV programs. Name both. Okay, so I do know... Sorry, this is uh, stealing from Marcus, correct? Yes, Tom and Tucker. Just wanted to be clear. I do know that the uh, the movie for this one is Joker. Yeah, I was. I typically like her work, and I didn't in that one, so I was, you know, a little conflicted about the award. It stuck in my mind. I'm trying to remember what the Emmy was. Um, Yeah. Let's see. There must be. This must be a prestige show that would, you know, shell out for certainly like one of the great film composers of, or at least the most notable film composers of her generation. So. Would that be something like The Handmaid's Tale, maybe? Or would it be something on HBO, I'm thinking? Yeah, one of 2019's most popular mm-hmm. and acclaimed TV programs. So it could be Succession. Yeah. I don't think it's that. I'm thinking Watchmen is is my mm-hmm. guess. Oh, no, I think that was Trent Reznor. Ah, oh, okay. If I remember right. But I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. But yeah, that, that's a great guess. Something along those lines, I would think. Yeah. Could it be another miniseries, maybe? Or limited series, or however they call it these days? What else was uh, 2019's most popular and acclaimed? I'm thinking drama, emotionally fraught, probably, or at least um, maybe with like a violent backdrop, similar to the other things she typically scores. Could she have done one of the final seasons of Game of Thrones? That was something I thought of. Now, I don't know uh, if the 2019 season of Game of Thrones would have been as popular or acclaimed as the others. Um, <laughs> I don't know if they would have changed the composers so late yeah. in their run. 
else could be along those lines? I I'm, unfortunately didn't watch as much TV these past two years as I've done in the past, so I should uh, remember Emmys. Um, I'm just throwing out other things that were in yeah. the Emmy conversation. The Crown last... I'm trying to figure out if it was this year or last year's Emmys, and I can't quite work that out from 2019, but The Crown, Killing Eve, um, Ozark. Yeah. Was Russian Doll 2019? Yes. Okay. Yeah, beginning of 2019. Yeah, if we're going into comedies, Dead to Me. Goodness, well... What are you most confident on? You did throw Succession out right away, and I still think that's definitely plausible. I'm just playing the theme song in my head, and it Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily sound like abrasive enough to be her, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> which made Yogesh laugh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, just acclaimed and popular. Could she have done like The Mandalorian? Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah, and that yeah that that was entirely 2019, if I remember right. That's definitely a program that would have shelled out the big bucks, and you know, popular and acclaimed seems to fit. Do you want to go with that, or are you a little more confident with a different show? I feel like it was earlier than that. I feel like she'd already won it at the Golden Globes when she won for Joker. So I think it's like the TV year before The Mandalorian. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it's Succession or Killing Eve are the yeah. two I'm down to. Yeah. All right. Uh, <laughs> or Game of Thrones. I would lean more towards the first two. But other than that, it's kind of a coin flip to me. Are you stronger with one on than the other here? I've been watching Succession recently, and I haven't seen her name. Okay. Which is not to say that it doesn't exist. It's just like I haven't seen it. A name like Hildur Gunnadottir, you'd probably you know, be able to recognize it, though, in the credits at some point. I hope so. This would be silly. Um, <laughs> all right, fine. <laughs> I feel yeah. like Succession's the best guess, though. I feel like Killing Eve would be pretty obscure. Okay. If you think that's the best guess and, you know, you've seen more of Succession than I have, then I'm comfortable going with that. You do have half of this question already, so. All right. Should we go for it? I think so, yeah. All right, you guess Succession and Joker. I'm trying this new thing now where I'm keeping my camera on, which means you can see me, but that means that I also have to play the poker face game while you're deliberating. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> luckily, I have this swivel chair, so I can just turn around completely and you can't see my face at all. Uh, <laughs> Which I may end up doing throughout this game. All right, so I will pass that over to Marcus. Do you agree, or do you have a different thoughts? I really am poor on... Well, for one thing, I didn't watch the So this is an awesome question for me. And also, I don't really watch the credits too much. I mean, a lot of the streaming stuff, you skip them. So just to be different, I, I totally agree on Joker. That definitely won. Um, but to take a wild guess here, because it was a new show, and... Similar themes to Joker and the superhero thing. I'm just going to say The Boys. Is that what you're locking in? Yeah. All right. Yeah, I see what you're thinking. I guess that did premiere in 2019. Yeah, although I'm hearing a lot more about it recently. But, you know, in terms of the maybe the most acclaimed TV program of 2019 and so popular that it set a new record on IMDb for the highest user ratings of any television show ever. Wow. It, you know it now, Tom? Is it Chernobyl? Chernobyl, yes. Oh, yes. We were on the right track with the HBO miniseries. Uh, yeah, yeah, you were definitely on the right track. But so when your guest means popular, he means the most popular. <laughs> 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 yeah, you know, I wasn't being misleading with that clue at all. I think. Oh. No, you. I was right. It wasn't abrasive enough succession yeah. to be. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't nearly disturbing enough. <laughs> <laughs>
All right, Tom and Marcus now to steal from Tucker. 1963's The Haunted Palace is considered the sixth of the eight films in Roger Corman's 1960s Poe cycle for American International Pictures. But although it is titled for a poem by Edgar Allan Poe, its plot actually comes from what author's novella, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward? Waiting for the question to come up. Case of Charles Dexter Ward. Mm-hmm. It kind of sounds... Well, do you think it's something like a... Considering the post cycle is all horror movies, I'm pretty sure. It's probably an author who kind of went into the macabre and gothic themes like Poe. Trying to think if Shirley Jackson did things other than the lottery or something like that, maybe. Yeah. The, like, name makes it sound like it was a sort of Conan Doyle work, because they were all called, like, the case of this. But I think that's a bit too obvious for even an allegedly not very hard question. (laughs) You'll guess hard, though. Yeah. I, Um, I think you're definitely on the right lines. You think it's American or could it be European? Because... Henry James, I'm yeah, thinking. Yeah, I'm thinking because a doll's house type of work or, um, you know, ghost stories. I mean, he's right. Out of the ones we've said, he's the most prolific, I think, of the, the... So I think, I mean, he probably has the most novellas to choose from. Yeah, I'm just... I'm thinking of novellas and they're all coming back Poe, not Ambrose Beers. I wish I'd seen the movie because I've seen The Mask of the Red Death and The Raven, but I haven't seen this one. Who's like Poe in that respect? Victorian uh, Robert Louis Stevenson? Could uh, be. You know, you got Jekyll and Hyde, but... Um, probably not Mary Shelley. It's probably, like, later than that. Yeah. So I'm thinking, too. Probably kind of Poe's era of, like... Or maybe a little bit later. Early 20th century, late 19th. H.G. Um, Wells. Uh, I think that's... Mm, could be. These are all plausible. Yeah, I don't. I don't really have a good guess here. I think the most convincing thing you told me was the Conan Doyle thing. I, or maybe Henry James might be a better guess. I don't know. I'm down for Henry James. I mean, I guess he's in the public consciousness because Bly Manor's just launched. Yeah, when you listen to this in 2021, we recorded this when Bly Manor had just launched. <laughs> um, yeah, Henry James then? Sure. Henry James. Yeah. We'll lock him with Henry James, you'll guess. All right. Well, at least you remember that Henry James is connected to Bly Manor, which you missed last time you were on the podcast. (laughs) So, again, it's educational. All right. (laughs) Tucker? Well, to be honest with you, when I was thinking, I was hoping that you wouldn't say Henry James because that seemed like a really strong answer here. His work's been adapted several times pretty recently. So I was really thinking that was a good answer. Other than that, I know that around the same time, there were a couple of Shirley Jackson short stories and novellas that were adapted into horror films, too. So at the risk of not uh, or at the risk of not overthinking this, so I can just take the obvious off the board here, I'll say Shirley Jackson. All right. Yeah. Henry James actually wasn't really a horror author. I mean, other than the turn of the screw, pretty much nothing he wrote was in the horror genre. Good guesses from both of you, but I really thought you might go for someone whose name is pretty much synonymous with horror and who is being adapted quite a bit nowadays. Oh, Lovecraft. Yeah, as Marcus said, H.P. Lovecraft. I didn't know that. Adapted Lovecraft. Did not know that. (laughs) Educational. Yeah. As with with most Lovecraft adaptations, it was fairly loose, but still, that was the basis for it. That's a Mormon adaptation. Right. I mean, like, The Raven obviously had very little to do with The Raven other than that there was a raven in it. 
Yes, but yeah, his, his adaptation of Casco Amontillado or Amontillado in uh, the Black Cat, or within Tales of Terror, he adapted the Black Cat, but it was also Casco Amontillado and probably the best adaptation of either of those stories. Black Cat is horrifying. <laughs> yeah, but whereas the the 30s movie, The Black Cat, has virtually nothing to do with this the story, The Black Cat. <laughs> All right. Now, Tucker and Marcus to steal from Tom, I believe. Okay. Portrayed by Laurent Olivier in Spartacus, what member of the First Triumvirate and richest man in the Roman Republic made the unwise decision to pick a fight with the Parthian Empire, resulting in a disastrous defeat at the 53 BC Battle of Carrhae? He was supposedly killed by having molten gold poured down his throat, sending the message that all his money couldn't save him. I watched... I was taking a break between college and law school, and I decided to watch all of Kubrick's movies in a row. So at the time, and I even talked about with other people Lawrence Olivier's performance in the movie. And so if I was asked this about 10 to 15 years ago, this would have been a lot better. <laughs> I'm thinking it starts with a J. Yeah, unfortunately, this combines two of my kind of weaknesses within even movies, which is ancient history and also character names. Uh, <laughs> where my knowledge just goes out the window. So you seemed like you had like a big flash of recognition here at some point. I'll let you take lead for thought, but I'm going to see if I can come up with any other Roman names in the meantime. For some reason, it's something like like a pun on just... Not a pun, obviously it's a Roman name, but similar to like Justice or something. Justinian, did that be... No, it wasn't... That, that would probably ring a bell that was too similar to a Byzantine thing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm wrong on the J thing altogether. I don't I just can remember Kirk Douglas saying, damn you, and then <laughs> insert his name. <laughs> Con! <laughs> it's going to be a shot in the dark here. I don't I have to use our Roman name generator thing where it ends with an A. And yeah. <laughs> this is a hard question. I probably have to yield to Tom. And then, um... Yeah, if you have a guess, I say go for it. Otherwise, I'd just be combining syllables that sound vaguely Roman. <laughs> Just throw it out there, uh, uh, boy. Just throw away my initial instinct. It's going to be a, probably the worst guest in the history of the podcast, but uh, Justica, I, something with justice, I, just get it over with. Finally, <laughs> knowing hell that's right, but. Okay. I was thinking in my head recently, like, what exactly would the worst guest on this podcast be? And I don't know if anyone's going to beat the West Nile virus as the thing that caused the sickness that led to the gnome serum run in 1925. <laughs> But, uh, all right, Tom. I just guess Johnson, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was Marcus Licinius Crassus. Yeah, so oh, to catch up guys, on, yeah, on, on Tom's previous episode, he decided not to guess Johnson as an answer, where it was correct. So, he, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> But yes, Marcus Licinius Crassus was the, third, the least famous member of the first triumvirate, but... Famous enough for Tom to get credit for knowing him. All right. Tom and Tucker now to steal from Marcus. Having entered the NFL in 1949, what man hung around long enough to have one of his career best seasons in 1970? When he was presented with the Burt Bell Award that season, Lamar Hunt quipped that he was, quote, as good as his father who used to play for Houston. In a 1976 episode of Happy Days set circa 1956, Ralph Malf describes this player as washed up, and Richie replies that he has two or three good years left. The joke is that this man was still active in the NFL at the time, and in fact appeared in his last game in January of 1976, just two weeks before that episode of Happy Days aired. Okay, so, said something... Oh, oh, I see, I see, okay. 
the Lamar Hunt quote made me think that, like, wait a minute, this player had a father in the NFL, and that threw me off entirely for a second until I realized what the joke was there. My guess for an extremely long-lasting NFL player from the early days would be George Blanda, would come to mind immediately. I'm going to think if there's anybody else. Tom, do you follow the NFL? Not at all. And the only long NFL player I know is Brett Favre. Yeah. Um, And I'm guessing that this is the wrong time period. So yeah, your your answer sounds great. Love it. Love it. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, we're just going for Johnson again. Yeah. I'm going to, I want to think through this just to be sure I'm not missing somebody else obvious, but in terms of really long NFL careers, especially from that day, yeah, because Blanda changed positions too. He was a quarterback and also a, a kicker. So um, I, I think we lock in Blanda here. Wonderful. Yeah. All right. Love it. All right. Yeah. Blanda, unsurprisingly correct. Yeah, you're welcome, Tucker. Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could have knew Tucker was a sports blogger and works for a. Voice is cutting out. Oh, it's just, yeah. Tucker kind of overlaps my knowledge of sports. So it's uh, I kind of got a different with categories, but. It is what it is. On my first episode in the first season, me and one of my opponents actually submitted the same category. So um, I'm used to this. Yeah. And also, yeah, Marcus, originally you submitted three sports categories for your categories, and I suggested you move away from that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I honestly wasn't sure how many years Blanda spent at each position. So yeah, that, that's yeah. one of the tough things with those older players is because you know, offenses were so different. And also, like, he played two positions. Like, <laughs> I think, I don't yeah. know he had the record for points for so long because he was a backup quarterback. And then there was, like, that, that couple-year span where he was needed, and he got some touchdowns. But it was, he was kicking for, like, 90% of his career, I think. And yeah. he was back up to, what, LaMonica? Well, LaMonica and um, Stabler towards the end. Yeah, yeah. And then who knows what he was doing in 49 and 50, in the 50s. I don't, <laughs> I don't know that era of Blanda. Yeah, I think he was with the George Halas Bears. No, I only know it was Raider. Okay, so now Tom and Marcus to steal from Tucker. All right, so last time Tucker was on the podcast, I was scrounging for questions about alternative rock. So my friend, pub quiz teammate, and music expert, Alex Darby, suggested a question about Epitaph Records, which was founded by Bad Religion guitarist Brett Gorwitz. So I did write a question about Epitaph Records. Tucker missed it. So now I'm coming back with a much more straightforward question. In 1994, Epitaph released what punk rock album featuring the smash hit singles Come Out and Play and Self-Esteem that to this day remains the best-selling album of all time released by an indie record label? Oh, my days. It's by Offspring, and the cover has, like, a like red face or, like, red man on it. Kind of like what Tucker was talking about with movie character names. I'm kind of like that with albums. All that much like offspring. It sounds like it's all you because all the stuff you just said is one of my offspring knowledge. Self-esteem's a great song. Um, oh, are you sure? Isn't Offspring a few years late? They were in '94 as well, releasing albums. 100% sure this is Offspring. Okay. Oh. <sighs> I figured they had one album is Offspring. But <laughs> oh, that's not a bad shout actually, especially if I can't go out with a better, better name. Just give me one sec. Yeah, I take your time. This is like you with the baseball question. I, I can't help. I can see this album cover in my eyes. I just can't remember what it's called. Yeah, I think your idea of self-titled is way better than just pulling out any random words that I can. So you want to do the honors? Offspring. <laughs> All right. Tucker? 
So this was a 50-50 for me. And then there was a hint here that I think might be one of the great um, I see what you did there hints of all time. Because the albums that I were thinking of, one was called Ixnay on the Ombre, but I think that was a little later. I think the correct answer, which did have, you know, by definition, smash hits, was the album called Smash. So my answer is Smash. Yeah, when I saw they featured the smash hit singles, that was true in more than one sense of the term. <laughs> nice. Nice. The answer is smash. Very good. All right. And so, okay, the next question for Tucker and Marcus to try and steal from Tom. I assure you this question is written in the English language, although it may not seem that way. <laughs> what common term in American English that may or may not describe your reaction to this question derives from a method of dismissal in cricket in which the wicketkeeper puts down the wicket while the batsman is out of his ground, or another way of saying that, the batsman has left the popping crease. You guys may be shocked to know this, but the <laughs> purely American fantasy sports site that I work for does not offer cricket as one of its sports. <laughs> so it's a common term in American English. May or may not describe my reaction to this question. and I had several so reactions. <laughs> Just remember, like, I don't know how old you are, but back when Seinfeld was doing those American Express commercials, mm-hmm. he did that cricket one, and he said, that was a wicked googly. <laughs> so that doesn't seem like something in common term in American English. Yeah. Uh, wicked keeper. My entire experience with cricket is... In college, I was working on a TV broadcast for a volleyball game. And after you know the volleyball players, where the varsity sport cleared the court, uh, pretty much like not even pickup, more of like a guerrilla team of cricket players came through to play a game in the middle of this gym, which looked to be on the verge of breaking a few windows at the time. But unfortunately, they didn't yell out any of common phrases that might describe this. And I don't think I saw the situation occur. So, huh. Method of dismissal. I don't even know how you put a batsman out in cricket. <laughs> it's not a great start for me. Um, yeah, I'm just going to uh, just try to think, I guess, focus more on the common term in American uh, English. Uh, yeah, reaction to this question. Uh, surprise question. It's like a, uh, uh, an interesting sounding word about, you know, being surprised. And Tom's trying to do his poker because I know he's all over this question. So. Yeah. <laughs> Pop. I don't know, that's too close to baseball. Um, yeah, that's not really a reaction. But I can't think of a good reaction word. Like, complete befuddlement? Um, it is anything. I don't, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. That's, just, if you're not getting anywhere, we can just take the L and <laughs> move on. Let's throw, there's nothing. I'll throw a befuddlement. <laughs> yeah. For a second, I thought you might lock in taking the L, which is another interesting way of... Yeah. <laughs> you went with uh, befuddlement, and yeah, I just remembered I'm not supposed to be touching my face, am I? <laughs> yeah. You're supposed to use a swervy chair, and you're not really using that a lot, you'll guess. Yeah. <laughs> I need to make it more like the voice, where I only turn around a dramatic moment. Yeah. <laughs> Evil <laughs> genius, yeah, I guess. Tom? Uh, so you guys would say that that question stumped you? Ah, oh, shoot. <laughs> okay, I have that. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it stumped. Yes, and as I predicted, it was, in fact, a good description of your reaction to that question. <laughs> all right, final question of the not-all-that-hard round before things move on to the only-somewhat-hard round. We'll go to Tom and Tucker to try and steal from Marcus. And this may not seem like it's in one of Marcus's areas, but I think it ultimately is. 
Jeanette Martineau played the Onde Martineau, an electric instrument invented by her brother, in the December 1949 premiere of what massive symphonic work composed by Olivier Messiaen? The composer defined its five-syllable title, which he formed by joining together two Sanskrit words, as meaning, quote, all at once, love song, hymn to joy, time, movement, rhythm, life, and death. You don't have to be a sewer mutant who thinks she's a cyclops to understand what that means, but it might help. So, I have no idea about the sewer mutant cyclops clue. Okay, because I was thinking that would be the only in for me here. So I'll think about the sewer mutant, and you think about the symphony. So, symphonic works. A symphonic work where I've never heard of a There's a film called Koyan Koyane Katsi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't know who composed that, and that might be why it's obliquely related to Marcus's categories. Mm-hmm. I'd always looked at that word and assumed it was like from Finnish or something because of the way it's spelled, but mm-hmm. uh, it's definitely not out of the question that it's Sanskrit. Yeah, well, uh, it's got a Q in it, which would be uncommon in Finnish, I would think. So, that... <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, that, that, that's the only way I can help here, is like vaguely knowing what languages something looks like. No, I... I mean, I would be pretty surprised if that film was about a sewer mutant, but also I kind of like that, too. I know it's like the broader meaning is like the whole like all at once life and death whole vibe going to it. It's avant-garde, so I figured they're all kind of like that. It's sort of symphonic works. And there's, sewer- another, there's another documentary that I haven't seen that I bet Yogesh likes because he likes The Fall, which is... It, but it's from much later where it's really beautiful images kind of just for like an hour and a half and it has another big title like that and I can't remember yeah. what the title is. Um, it, it, pretty sure it's the same director whose name I can't remember right now. Um, ah, bollocks. I was going to watch this movie and then I never did. Yeah. I bet it's... Any progress on the sewer mutant Cyclops? <laughs> uh... Amy Comey Barrett has too many syllables. (laughs) Burn. (laughs) No, at at the moment, no. I mean, is that like an obscure member of the X-Men that that's referring to? That's what I I could think of. Yeah, that's not a superhero series I know much about. So... All right, you want to take a stab at Koyanakatsi? And... Yeah, I, I thought that was a pretty strong guess to begin with, so let's stick with it. I don't think we're going to do better than that. Yeah, yep. that's our guess, you guess. Uh, yeah, my YouTube channel is called Koyanakatsi 3, so I can tell you. I can, in fact, spell it correctly. I can tell you it is a Hopi Indian word usually translated as life out of balance. And I have actually been in San Francisco to a concert where the entire score was conducted by its composer, Philip Glass. Right. I, I couldn't not put that information out there yeah right. marcus so my category is definitely not classical music so it's all tied to this sewer mutant who thinks she's a cyclops and that has reference to futurama and i believe the five syllables are taranga lila that's my final answer all right yes messian's work was the symphony turanga lila and that is absolutely correct good job nice poll I've, n- I've never heard of that fact at all before. <laughs> oh, I'm, yeah, you can guess my category. Well, I guess this is the last question of the round, right? So it's, yeah. So my category was animated sitcoms. 
I'm a huge fan of Simpsons. Anything Matt Groening related, really. So, yep. Disenchantment. <laughs> I like it. It's not as good, obviously, but I like it. The Life in Hell shorts. <laughs> Those right. I haven't seen them. Yeah. Yogesh, <laughs> what documentary was I thinking of? I actually am not sure what documentary uh, you were thinking of. I'll look it up. But there is a whole trilogy of Koyana Scotti films, and then the cinematographer from it also made a film called Baraka. What's uh, that movie he did like uh, a few years ago where it was just people's faces? I mean, there there is a movie called like Just Faces or something like that that like the artist J.R. made, but I don't know if I that's. I remember he's on Colbert back on the Colbert Report was on, and he um was talking about Colbert's like, oh, you're the director of Koyana Scotti, now here's your next beautiful movie, and it was just. It's black and white, and it's going from faces of people and animals. And oh, I haven't kept up with his recent career, so I yeah couldn't okay. tell you. But I'm just curious. Yeah, we'll look it up at later. But uh, right now, at the end of this round, the scores I have are 5.1 for Tucker, 7.1 for Tom, and 5.0 for Marcus. So very close together, still anyone's game. And yeah, you each got your last specialist question correct, so we're all hanging together. And now the points will go up to four points for a steal, three points for a specialist, and we'll begin with Tom and Marcus to steal from Tucker. What actor played a key role in the 90s indie film movement, starring in Noah Baumbach's debut feature Kicking and Screaming, and Mark Waters' edgy black comedy The House of Yes, and also played a white American supervising an Indian call center in 2006's Outsourced, which was later adapted into a short-lived NBC sitcom. Do not confuse him with a baseball player who hit an incredible 359 with 32 home runs and 100 RBIs for the Texas Rangers in 2010 before seeing his career and reputation collapse in a haze of addiction and violence issues. So I know who the baseball player is. And again, I know you don't follow baseball, so uh, it's Josh Hamilton. So, so it gets us back to the actor. So, oh, this might be because Josh... Do Hamill played Win a Date with Tad Hamilton. Josh Do Hamill would be, be a great shout. I, I'm trying. Did you see any of these three movies? So Kicking and Screaming ages ago, but I can't. I couldn't tell you who was in it. Definitely not outsourced. Yeah, no. Like the, the clue is, the clue is that his name is sounds a lot like Josh Hamilton. So Something yeah. That, um, Josh. Do Hamill because it has the Hamill in it. Then you think is that the best guess? I think that's an amazing guess. You guess we'll block it with Josh Do Hamill. Tucker, is that right? Uh, uh, you guys are going to be kicking and screaming. The actor's name is also Josh Hamilton. Um, yeah, you. Uh, I, di- I did not predict that, that this question would be overthought, but unfortunately, you did overthink it. That's a great guess if you don't know the actor, like the cast of those movies, though. That's terrific guess, really. Yeah. Sometimes I think these guesses are, are so good, I wish that they were correct. And, yeah, I really wish I had written a question about Josh Duhamel because, yeah, that would have been <laughs> a really good way to clue it. But uh, I did, Yeah, I just didn't know Josh Hamilton, the actor, so I, I thought I had to think of the actor. So and Here I was, as soon as, like, Yogesh kept reading the clues for the baseball player, I was like, no, no, stop. <laughs> I, I knew it had outsourced. Yeah, I, when that happens at a pub quiz, I think to myself, too many clues, too many clues. Is that your just internal monologue, Yogesh? <laughs> Whenever I manage to suppress it and it doesn't become my external monologue, yes. Yeah. You can be obnoxious and in your team that too many clues. And each time I get the too many clues, yell at the, the pub quiz host, too many clues! 
Yeah, I have seen that team name used, so I just want to assure everyone, it has. I have never actually used it as a, any team calling itself that has no connection to me. I've never actually used that as a team name. Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> if I say it on this podcast, it must be true. That's the rule. <laughs> okay, Tucker and Marcus now to steal from Tom. What name is shared by the Canadian rock band fronted by Stranger Things actor Finn Wolfhard? the Finch family's black housekeeper in To Kill a Mockingbird, and Julius Caesar's wife, who is said to have warned him to avoid the Senate on the Ides of March. Oh, boy. I'm definitely not familiar with Finn Wolfhard's alternative career. I can't say I've listened to music, but I, I, I saw a couple headlines when like they released their first album, and I would recognize their name when I hear it. I don't remember. No, I read the book and watched the movie like I'm sure a lot of people did with To Kill a Mockingbird. I just, I don't even remember a housekeeper, to be honest. I, I remember the character. I just can't, <laughs> character names. It's coming back to me again. It's a, it's a mental block. Um. So, I don't know. I, I'm tending to think it might be a one-name thing. I think you're right. But I don't, I definitely don't know Julius Caesar's wife either. So, whatever you could, uh, do you have a guess here? I. <laughs> You'd think I would, because again, like I'm familiar with Finn Wolfhard's band. I've read and seen To Kill a Mockingbird about a dozen times, and I have read Julius Caesar, so... <laughs> um, Joey Jojo Jr. Shabadoo is the best I have right now. That's uh, the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, every, everything that I, I thought that the band might be called is something that I can't imagine... Uh, ancient roman woman would have been named and that's no i really have nothing here that's a complete blank and uh, we have to throw out a name uh yeah. god what could the... what is the... <sighs> I, I don't i don't know as soon as i hear it i'm gonna just be so mad at myself <laughs> Della or something no that would be street burning desire yeah i'm afraid i'm just shaking my head here I'm, everything i come up with only fits like Two of three, plausibly. So, you want to try Johnson? Yeah, let's go with uh, let's go with Josephine. Does that work for you? <laughs> that's that's fine with me. Yeah. Perfect, Josephine. It is recreational thinking, making people hate themselves since 2019. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tom. Uh, I have no idea about Finn Wolfhard's band, but the housekeeper in To Kill a Mockingbird and Caesar's third wife are both called Calpurnia. Ah, yes. Oh. Is that what you're locking in? Yeah. All right. And yes, unsurprisingly, that is correct. Yeah. Well, I did know the, the, the black housekeeper's name because that now it's all tying together. Yeah. All right. Tom and Tucker now to steal from Marcus. The lead role in the music video for Luke Bryan's Light It Up is played by what NBA star and recent LeBron nemesis? He won Olympic gold as part of the U.S. team at the 2016 Olympics back when he was with the Bulls. <laughs> Well, I know a recent LeBron nemesis from this past week who played with the Bulls and plausibly would have been on an Olympic team. So, I mean, my guess would be Jimmy Butler, although I can't imagine there'd be a whole lot of... I didn't know there would have been overlap between Jimmy Butler and Luke Bryan. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. I can confirm that Jimmy Butler used to be on the Bulls. Yeah. (laughs) Trying to think who else was on that team. Uh, Yeah. Especially in 2016. I don't think they were especially good. I think that was right before Dwayne Wade got there, but I don't think he was on the 2016 Olympic team. Because back in 2016, Luol Deng used to play for the Bulls, and that was a big deal because he was the only British star at that Olympics. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. 
played on the U.S. team. Yeah. Joakim Noah was the center. No, I I don't think he would have been. Not on the Olympic team. Um, no, no, of course. I'm just, oh, I'm just yeah. throwing things out. Yeah. Okay. I think that was after Boozer left. Boozer, there yeah. wouldn't be a recent LeBron nemesis. Sorry, did you say something? Uh, no, I was just confirming Boozer. I was like, yeah, that's actually... Yeah. Oh, okay, sorry. I, I don't want to talk over you, but I'm also loudly speaking into my microphone. <laughs> yeah, I, I have nothing else except Jimmy Butler right here at the risk of overthinking it and talking myself into something first. Do you just want to lock that in? Yeah, I think that's a good guess. All right, yo, guess we will go with Jimmy Butler. All right, yeah. Maybe one of the least likely fans of country music, Jimmy Buckets, Jimmy Butler, is correct. All right. I kind of need to know more about the Luke Bryan Jimmy Butler partnership. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somebody leads to track down once this is over. But for now, we'll keep going with the next question. Mm-hmm. Um, and Marcus to Seal from Tucker. Dario Argento's Inferno features a musical score, not by Ennio Morricone or anyone from Goblin, but rather by what English prog rocker and perhaps not so lucky man who sadly committed suicide in 2016? Um. Lucky man. Ooh, what a lucky man he was. Is that ELP? Do you follow prog, like classic prog rock at all? ELP sounds like a decent shout. So I gotta think of which one it is. Trying, nothing ringing a bell with one of them committing suicide. And honestly, now that I think about it, the only one I can think of the first name of, and I, I guess Yogesh said blast names are fine. So um, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer are the names. But What's the clue about Goblin? So that's not much of a help because um, Goblin composed the score of like a lot of Argento's films. So it's just saying it's not the obvious composer for an Argento movie. So I kind of think I'm thinking Greg Lake because he's kind of the biggest deal of ELP. Do you have any do you have any reason to go with Emerson or Palmer? I'm trying to remember like 2016. Trying to remember if anyone I could read the article of them dying. I did but... think I do think I remember Greg Lake dying recently. So I think we should lock in with Greg Lake. I mean, that's a great guess. So. We're going to lock in with Greg Lake. Lock in Greg Lake? Yes. All right. So Tucker was the inferno near the lake. <laughs> I knew you would ask me an Argento question. Um, unfortunately, the only one I've seen more than once is Suspiria, and the rest kind of blend together for me other than knowing that opera has this really, really cool hard rock soundtrack. That's probably Goblin then, right? Probably. Pretty hard rock sound too. Goblin had broken up well before opera, but the main composer from it, Claudio Simonetti, did contribute some of the music. Gotcha. Okay. Oh, so, sorry. Just to confirm, um, were you tossing this to me for a guess? Yes. Okay, sorry. My speaker cut out for just a split second, and I wanted to confirm that. Okay, so, uh, yeah, I, I don't know this answer right away. Uh, this is not, like, the last question. I thought that you guys were on a great track there, and if I can't come up with anything else in the meantime, I might just she was one of the other members of that band at first i thought you know like a not so lucky musician who passed recently might have been daniel johnston but uh, he's not really a prog rocker um i mean not so lucky man does i i'm not sure if that's a cryptic clue to a name similar to johnson or not but no i i, I don't know who else would have been composing inferno for argento back then so in the spirit of everything else and um uh, with respect to uh, you guys for the assist there, I guess I'll go with Palmer. So Marcus did identify the song, Oh Lucky Man, I was trying to hint. Apparently that was written at the age of 12 by Greg Lake, who did in fact die in 2016 of cancer. He did not commit suicide. Oh. 
the member of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer who committed suicide, sadly, in 2016, was Keith Emerson. Oh. <laughs> Goodness. Foiled again. That, that's a great trivia question because you can get everybody on the right track and then have them all still be wrong. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know if it would work out that way, but I did think that would probably be the funnest outcome. So yeah, yes. <laughs> all right. Where are we now? Uh, Tucker and Marcus to steal from Tom. So going back to Jochen Rindt, many placed the blame for his death on Team Lotus founder Colin Chapman. Chapman himself died in 1982, though a recurring conspiracy theory claimed that he faked his death because after he died, he was posthumously discovered to have likely embezzled some 10 million pounds of taxpayer money. That deceit was discovered in the wake of what American business partner of Chapman's being accused of cocaine trafficking. This man was eventually acquitted after claiming entrapment, but it was too late to save his namesake company. Let me just do the question. Honestly, my first instinct with 80s cocaine trafficking and namesake company kind of all joins to DeLorean. Wasn't that his thing? John DeLorean got cocaine? Um, I'm, try- I'm trying to I'm trying to remember back to the future here. What are the letters on the DeLorean car? Is that like or is it just like the acronym for like DeLorean car company or something yeah, like that? I think that? so because it's like DLC or something. Yeah and I mean I don't know if it was like you know DeLorean somebody Chapman, if that was the case, but I mean, if if that came to you immediately, I don't. I, I just don't know anything about this. It's, it's a Lotus and all this other stuff. It's just cocaine and '80s namesake company. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, honestly, like that's the thing. Like, if we're thinking about like rich Americans in the '80s who did a lot of cocaine, there's not a lot of places you can narrow that down to. So, if you want to go with DeLorean, I'm perfectly okay with that. Yeah, and um. Yeah, that's our final answer. You'll get DeLorean. Yep. All right. And very good deduction there because DeLorean is correct. Nice job. Thanks. I wouldn't have got that. Yeah, great thinking. Yeah. Good job. And all right. Now Tom and Tucker to steal from Marcus. So long before his Manchester by the Sea Oscar, Kenneth Lonergan got his first screenwriting credit on two 1993 episodes, really more like half episodes, of what animated TV series? One of those episodes revolves around a game of truth or dare, while the other sees the main character caught up in a mail-order sweepstakes before ultimately realizing that it is a con. Um, yikes. Well, 1993 animated TV show that was split into two. Uh, I mean, the most popular would have been Rugrats, probably, but, I mean, Kenneth Lonergan on Rugrats would be kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, the split in two, I think, is... Very valid. Um, regret. Recess. That was a little after 93. Um, let me think. So I was born in 1994, so I am kind of thinking of, like, hopefully the show lasted into when I could watch it as a kid. It's very plausible that the show was at the end of its run, too. But let's see. The main character caught up in a mail-order sweepstakes. Okay, so that couldn't be Rugrats then, because the main character would have been Tommy, and he's too young for a mail-order sweepstakes. Uh, could be. Yeah, it was like maybe like an Angelica character, but I don't think Tommy Pickles could have. That's that's beyond his capabilities as a child. Let's see. I was also born in '94, but that's slightly yeah. I'm not sure if I watched many of these. Okay. Um, so let's see. If there's something with like a main character, it doesn't necessarily have to be like a 
like a title character, but Hey Arnold could be. I mean, like it seems to fit. Although that's also, I think that started later. And let's see if like the Lonergan thing, because he's like a dramatist too. So yeah. I don't know if there's like something that's a little more serious than outwardly comedic, if that helps. But can you think of any adult animation shows apart from The Simpsons that were that old? Um, maybe The Critic. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that would have had a Game of Truth or Dare. I'm just trying to think networks here. It's you know, it's before South Park. It's a little before King of the Hill. Yeah, King of the Hill is probably not a bad shout, unless you're sure the dates are wrong. But, um, yeah, I, unfortunately, I'm pretty confident the dates are wrong there. So you want to just go for Rugrats, then? I'm thinking there's got to be something better on like Nickelodeon, maybe. I'm trying to run through channels right now to see if that's prompting anything in my in my head. Flintstones? <laughs> I wish. That would be a lot easier on me. Truth or dare? So, okay, so this must have, like, teenagers, though, right? Or at least, like, adolescents. Um, so what would have had that? And if the dates were changed, I would really want to say as told by Ginger here, but I don't think that, I, I don't think that's early enough either. Half episode. Oh shoot. What was, um, did you ever see the show Bobby's world? Nope. I I don't know if that's half episode or not, but it has a main character. I think it's, I think it's an adolescent, although it could be wrong. The years line up. I think that's I think that's the best guess I'm going to have right now. I'm sure I'll be kicking myself when I hear the real answer, but I think that's the best one I can come up with at the moment. Go for it. All right, yo, guess we're gonna go with Bobby's World. Sorry, I need to I need to do the, the voice swivel. <laughs> that's a Bond villain swivel. Yeah, you know, you need a white cat. <laughs> next time, I'll, I'll remember to get that for next time. <laughs> okay, you locked in. Uh, was it Bobby's World? You said. Yeah. Okay, yeah. You mentioned your ages. I was like, all right, you're all much younger than me. Although I should have figured that out when you referred to Hilda Gudna daughter as like one of the best of her generation. And I'm like, she's only a couple of years older than me. So <laughs> I, I just refer to that as like a general timeline. All right. Marcus? I'm kind of stumped like these guys. This isn't, you know, 93 animated sitcom typey stuff that Lonergan would probably write on. Thinking Simpsons, he obviously never wrote for that. I mean, well, not obviously, but I know he never wrote for that show. So kind of going back to the logic of a truth or dare and adolescence, I think this show is old enough, although it'd be kind of weird if, I don't know, people get starts all sorts of places. I'm going to throw out Daria. Ooh. You're locking in Daria? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly about the dates on Daria, but, you know, yeah, I guess with the, in terms of 90 shows revolve around adolescence, maybe a bit more kid-focused and have a, a main character whose name is in the title, I'm kind of surprised none of you ever landed on Doug. Oh. Oh. That was a great show, too, but I just haven't watched it in so many years. I... Yeah, that was another show that divided up its episodes into two segments that had different writers and different plots. Yeah, I was thinking it had to be... Daria probably was always one plot per episode. Yeah, but I think 93 would have been toward the end of its original run on Nickelodeon, but then, of course, it got picked up by ABC and went for several more seasons. Yeah, and that's the run that I'm familiar with, so yeah, didn't cross my mind. Never heard I'm of like, it. I'm like, oh, I think I'm in my 30s here, so I'm more familiar with the Nickelodeon run. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On a complete tangent, my favorite thing about Doug is that the movie was very optimistically called Doug's first movie. There was no <laughs> second movie. Good point, yeah. <laughs> All right, the next one goes to what looks like Tom and Marcus to steal from Tucker. And okay, I did not look up how to pronounce this person's name, so I apologize for getting it wrong if I do. 
Michael Jolette, M-I-K-E-L on the first name, graduated from Stanford where he was a research assistant on some of the stereotype threat studies of psychologist Claude Steele, who was also one of my mentors. A decade later, while working as a journalist and aspiring novelist, he suffered through a single week in which he learned that his mother had cancer, his long-term relationship ended, and he was diagnosed with a genetic condition that resulted in severe alopecia and vitiligo. So picking up the pieces from that, worst week ever, he transitioned into a singing-songwriting career and formed what indie rock band that takes its name from a key plot point in Don DeLillo's White Noise? Oh boy, I read White Noise several years ago, and shoot, what happened in that book? He's uh, He works at a university, and I think something terrible happens, ends up happening. You ever read that book, Tom? <laughs> okay. Yeah, shaking your head silently isn't always the best for podcasts. Uh, sorry. Uh, I can repeat, Tom does, did not read White Noise. <laughs> 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 yeah, some disease happens or something. So uh, what's the, I can't remember what it's called, though. That's probably what the indie rock band based off of is, I think it's some drug or something that becomes popular, ends up killing people or something. Interesting. Transition from that to an indie rock band where it kind of is a, you know, a depressing dark thing happening i'm not really good at indie rock so i'm indie not. rock bands with a name that might vaguely fit death cab for cutie mm. um cage the elephant i'm just trying to think of people who have weird names like that it's like the lumineers in indie rock but that doesn't make sense yeah lumineers raconteurs um white stripes but i i doubt that makes sense i never heard of him claude steel probably quite good at Yogesh's podcast if you can steal all the questions. <laughs> um, Singing songwriting career. So it's like a guy on an acoustic guitar. Yeah, fits in the tantrums. Play keyboard or piano. A lot of singer-songwriters do that too. Yeah I, I, yeah, I don't know. Can you describe anything more from White Noise? Just like anything that happens in the novel? No, the thing I remember most of that book, honestly, is random dialogue where they discuss movies and stuff. There's like a few pages where they rave about old-timey actor Robert Ryan, but that's not a key plot point of the book. It's just kind of, that's kind of what the little thing is. He writes a lot of dialogue, pulling from pop culture stuff, but it wasn't really a key plot point. It's been too long. I I feel like there there was a name of some entity or a drug kind of was a key plot point in the book. Something that kind of sounds like a drug or a corporation, maybe, where I'm going. But, again, this kind of goes back to, I really don't, I'm not an indie rock person. Tame Impala, Foles. Like, could be like Cat's Cradle, where it's something with a number. It's kind Because of, it was Strict Nine was the thing in Cat's Cradle. I'm just thinking maybe something with a number. 21 Pilots. Oh, I don't remember planes in that book. Yeah, you've thrown a lot of great indie rock bands at me, and I, none of them ring bells. Yeah, so what ties to the book? Um, but you wanna take the L and just put out Death Cab for Cutie? Yeah, because the death thing. I think that's probably the best one I've heard. Yeah, I guess we'll lock in with Death Cab for Cutie. Right, yeah, Twenty One Pilots. I think is a literary reference. I think it's an Arthur Miller reference. I definitely read Where Death Cab for Cutie Comes From. I want to say it's a song from the 60s by, like, Bonzo Dog Duda Band or something. But, yeah, good guesses, but uh, nothing... Good knowledge for the 60s quiz on Learn League. <laughs> yes, yes. 
when I saw 60s music mini, like I was like, I have to, well, I signed up for all of them anyway, but I was like, this one feels like it is going to be in my wheelhouse a bit. Stuff that happened before I was born. There, there we go. <laughs> um, hmm. So, yeah, I, I definitely recognize the name Michael Gillette. And this is one of those where, <laughs> again, I will be kicking myself as soon as I hear it. I haven't read the book. I, f- I feel like picking up the pieces has to be a hint that I'm not catching on to. Severe alopecia, I mean, bald indie rock singers is kind of a broad category there, too. So I'll, I'll go with something that I'm pretty sure is a literary reference to something else, but I don't think this is the band. I'm going to go with the Airborne Toxic event. Can you repeat that? The Airborne Toxic event. Okay, yeah. So picking up the pieces, I was mainly just kind of, you know, I thought it was an interest. I actually had not come across it until researching for this podcast just an interesting life story how he basically you know out of so many negative events sort of transitioned careers because he'd been trying to make it as a writer and novelist before that and hadn't been seriously pursuing music and i guess with all of those kind of stressful events he you know went through kind of a meaning making process but just looking at his wikipedia page right now i was like i thought i'd gotten all the negative events i'd forgotten that apparently he was born into the church of synanon which according to wikipedia has been called one of the most dangerous and violent cults America had ever seen. So, yeah, actually, he was having a pretty hard life even before all of that happened. Um, Yeah, but the name of his band is, in fact, the Airborne Toxic Event. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, uh, wherever you pulled that from, it was the correct place to pull from. All right. So, Tucker and Marcus now to steal from Tom. Bob Woolmer became coach of what nation's cricket team in 2004? In 2007, he was found dead in a Kingston hotel room the day after this nation was knocked out of the Cricket World Cup by an upset loss to Ireland in the group stage. I actually remember this, uh, yeah, just randomly remembering things from ESPN.com headlines. It was the head coach of Pakistan got strangled to death after losing a big match. So I think we should love Pakistan. Yeah, because all I was going to say was, well, that knocks out Ireland. So, yeah, if you remember this, then definitely we'll, we'll lock that in. We'll lock with Pakistan, I guess. I guess the uh, unintended theme of this episode is things that provoke conspiracy theories. Because I think <laughs> officially, it's still, there's an open verdict on the inquest. It's not really known. I mean, Wikipedia seems to indicate it was likely natural causes, but there's certainly still the possibility he was strangled or murdered in some other way. We'll probably never really know. But yes, Pakistan is the correct answer. Good job. Good call. Thanks. All right. Now the last question of this round before we move to the super hard round. We'll go to Tom and Tucker to try and steal from Marcus. British actress Caroline Goodall gave acclaimed performances in the Australian miniseries Cassidy and the Australian film Hotel Sorrento. But to U.S. audiences, she is likely most familiar as Mia Thermopolis's mother in the Princess Diaries movies. However, in the early 1990s, Goodall had a brief flirtation with international stardom when a world-famous director cast her as the protagonist's wife in two high-profile Hollywood films released within two years of each other. Unfortunately, as with many high-profile films in Hollywood, even the largest female roles turned out to be disappointingly thankless. But here's your job. Name both of those films. So, okay. So, early 90s, world-famous director, the protagonist's wife, and two high-profile. Um, to clarify, this is the same director? Yes, the two films that I'm talking about were by the same director. Okay, so, let's see. World-famous directors, early 90s, could be Spielberg, would come to mind immediately. He had a lot of early 90s movies. 
See who else would have been like a, a like a world famous director with high profile Hollywood movies. Um, James Cameron, Ridley Scott. Yeah. Um, the mic's kind of quiet, Tom. Yeah. Now you're completely silent. Oh yeah. Well, that still wasn't saying anything. Uh, <laughs> I'll explain it. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. Like, the so, two directors um, I threw out were James Cameron and Ridley Scott. Cameron, I believe, in the early '90s went from '91 to '94. So within the two years, within check out there let's see okay if it was spielberg then i mean i guess schindler's list could be on there what would he have done in the opposite direction oh that's yeah blanking on my chronology oscar schindler's wife and then it cut she says like you must be loyal to me and then it cuts and she's on the train like going in the other direction uh what was um okay so 94 i want to say he took the year off and i don't i'm trying to remember if he had a movie in 1995 and this list was 93 yes yeah Mm -hmm. so 91 and 92 and i know he put one out during that time but i'm just not thinking of when was amistad that was 96 or 7 i believe yeah because he did like the two movies per year thing for a little bit in the 90s these are all movies that I, I know if it's Spielberg, and I, I'm just blanking. See, it's not that it could be really good. Um, could it be like Scorsese with The Age of Innocence and then something else? It wasn't Cape Fear, but I don't remember what he did in the couple of years after that either, which is more frustrating. He did Casino. Um, yes, yeah, 95. That didn't have a... So what... What Spielberg release came out between Last Crusade and Schindler's List? Well, maybe stepping back a second, what what yeah. category is this that we're guessing at? We had one that was baseball, um, one that was film composers, animated sitcoms. Yeah. Oh, wait, no, yours is film composers. No, oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, um, so, yeah, I, I don't really have this one down. It could... Uh, uh, Spielberg between and I, I just want to think this out so at least we can eliminate it if it's not right. But oh my goodness, between Last Crusade and Schindler's List, um, I mean I know Jurassic Park was the same year as Schindler's List, but I, I don't think he would have said within two years. And I mean Sam Neill was character in Jurassic Park. I don't think married. Did he do the the second Jurassic Park? Did he direct that? Yeah, that was 1997 though. So. Oh my goodness! Why? <laughs> Sorry, what did you say? Hook. Yes. Ooh. Yeah, that seems to make sense. At the right time, and that could be. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That I I think that we go with Hook and Schindler's List here. Right. Yeah, we're not gonna get any closer. Great poll. Thank you. It was blocked out of my mind for good reason, but it was. <laughs> so, yo, guess we're gonna go with Schindler's List and Hook. All right. That was an excellent discussion. The only thing I'm disappointed is that when uh, you got to the turning point, Tom was barely audible when he, when he said hook. That would have been a very dramatic moment. But uh, in any case, after a extended discussion, you did in fact puzzle your way to the correct answer. Yeah. <laughs> if you guys didn't get it, I wouldn't have gotten it. I That was an amazing poem with hook. I, sorry, what was that? I'm sorry, it was an amazing pull of hook. I could not have thought of that. 
Yeah, you framed the question exactly right. What was the movie that Spielberg made between Last Crusade and Jurassic Park? And then it just was a matter of filling that in. So that was really good teamwork. Tucker framed the right question and Tom got the answer. When you brought up Scorsese, I was hoping you're right, but I figured on my own that the wives didn't match up those movies. Goodfellas, Mm -hmm. Casino, and um, Age of Innocence. Yeah. The same. And for Spielberg, I was stuck on Always, but he did that thing where he released two movies per calendar year for a while, and that threw me. (laughs) So who is the actress? I couldn't figure that out. Caroline Goodall? Oh, you put in the question. Oops. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Can we just take a two-minute break before the final round? Yeah, sure. Cool. Thanks. Where are you living now, Yogesh? I'm in Vancouver, Washington. Oh. You were in Oregon recently, too, right? I mean, so Vancouver, Washington is right on the border with Oregon, so oh. I, I kind of claim both states. <laughs> These are Yogesh's states. I, I claim them. <laughs> yeah, I wish we had the lack of sales tax that Oregon has, but oh well. Do you really think that Caroline Goodall's role in Hook was disappointingly thankless? Because compared to the rest of the movie, it was, you know, a downright meaty role. I'm going to try without the headphones, see if that works a bit better. You do sound a little more louder, so that sounds good. Cool. I had some mistakes in this score, but for now, let's say the scores are 27.1, Tucker, Tom, 18.1, Marcus, 13.0. All right. That's good. I don't think any of us are keeping scores, so we believe you. (laughs) The point values go up here. Six points for the steal, five points for answering a specialist question, and three points for a bonus if one occurs. And now the first question of the super hard round will go to Tom and Marcus to steal from Tucker. All right, this is a kind of long question. These are harder than the last round. Is that a guarantee? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think when uh, Todd Hunter was here, he kept flummoxing me because he would get really confused by the question, or he would get have really struggled with the questions in the easy rounds and then get the hard ones right away. And I was like, yeah, my calibration clearly is completely wrong for him. (laughs) But um, all right. Tucker's previous game, which I'm in the process of editing, featured multiple questions about the 1932 classic Island of Lost Souls and its influence on popular music. So now let's talk about its influence on popular television. So, Gail Patrick came to Hollywood as a finalist in a beauty and talent contest to find someone to play the Panther Woman in Island of Lost Souls. She didn't get that part, or at least she didn't end up playing that part, but she did have a decent career during the 30s and 40s before retiring from acting following her third marriage to literary agent Cornwell Jackson. So she was occupying herself running a successful children's fashion shop called Enchanted Cottage when she became aware that one of her husband's clients was dissatisfied with how his most famous literary character had been handled in previous movie adaptations of his work. Realizing the power of the nascent medium of broadcast network television, she promptly formed a production company and pitched CBS on a television series based around that character, eventually serving as executive producer and showrunner for that massively influential series across its entire initial run of 271 episodes. Name the character who was its protagonist. Wow. Okay, let's take a second to read that. <laughs> yes, it's I can't get in one screen. Muscles and popular music. Popular TV. Yes, those first two sentences are flavor text. You don't have to worry about them. Okay, so there's a character where there were films maybe in the 30s, 40s, or 50s, and then it became a TV show that had an enormous run. Um, It has to be a literary character, too. I I really don't think... I 
can't really think of. I'm thinking of the Lone Ranger. I have really, TV run, but um. Really early TV shows. Seventy-one's a lot, so I'm almost thinking like a soap opera. Because you know those are everyday and whatnot. There's a lot of westerns that were on for a long time, so Lone Ranger is kind of on the right track. But I don't know enough. And I know I think I'm like Bonanza was based on a book or something like that. I, that's just as good a guess as Lone Ranger. And I definitely can't think of any movies. Bonanza, Rawhide was one. Gunsmoke was one. There was... Um, travel. Wait, I had one on the tip of my tongue. God dang it. Uh, name the character was its protagonist. So, like, if we could think of a main character... Uh, the, the character was a protagonist in any of these westerns. Wasn't Matt Dillon the main character on Gunsmoke or something? I don't know. There's another clue where it says entire initial run. Maybe implies it was like rebooted later. Yeah, so maybe we start thinking of remakes of shows that were popular in the old like days. Hawaii Five-O, MacGyver, Magnum PI. Yeah. Maybe detective shows. Yogesh loves Columbo. I don't think they remade Columbo. He's hoping they do, but. Uh, or maybe the, not, because that might ruin his beloved Columbo. So. <laughs> what What's the other one where it's like a uh, oh, Perry Mason? Oh, that that's probably a good guess, because that had a huge run with what's his face, Raymond Burr. What's the one that's just the facts, like Joe Friday or whatever his name is? Dragnet. Dragnet. I know they made a movie. It was really bad. Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks. Well, there's some enjoyable moments, but it's pretty bad. Uh, but I don't think they made a show. FB- I think there was an old show called FBI, but I don't think it was on for 271. And I definitely can't think, because we, we need the character. So I can't tell you who was on. Well, it, would be, it would be, if it were Dragnet, it would be Joe Friday. But, yeah, uh, I'm just trying. A character who was in movies, too, and based on a book. Yeah. The question says, name the character who was its protagonist. I feel like that implies that it's not an eponymous TV show, that it's not like the character's name is the TV show's name, which would like rule out the Lone Ranger and, or maybe not, but it would rule out Perry Mason. Yeah, probably. What's the Lone Ranger's name? Oh boy, I can't, I can't think of it. If you're willing to trust me on this one, our best guess might be Matt Dillon for Gunsmoke, because I believe that had records for Longest Run or something. Yeah, I feel like... 271's a lot, but it's not, like, record-breaking a lot. Because if they, you know, for these, suppose, I mean, because they might have been on a, like, daily program back then, but let's just say they weren't and they were still on a weekly and the season runs for half a year, that's 26 episodes a year, so that's only 10 seasons. Like, I don't think this is, like, a record-breaking run. Yeah, perhaps. I, I don't know. We could keep talking for right? We're just going to circle it, and I don't know if we can get confident on anything. My punt in the dark is Joe Friday, but I'm open to your punts in the dark. Do you know if that was on CBS or not? Okay. Yeah, it's as good as anything, and the benefit of that one is we're sure of the main character, so I'm fine with that. We'll just we'll go with that. You'll guess we'll lock in with Joe Friday. All right, yeah. Once again, the silent shaking of the head isn't always the most... <laughs> anyway, uh, Tucker. So... There were a few hints there. In the interest of suspense, I will mention right now that one of the things you mentioned was the guess that I had all along, 
But because I believe this character did have a run of movie serials before the TV show started, I'm pretty sure it was a CBS show for about 10 seasons. And it, as of this podcast, had a very recent reboot on one of the premium services. But yeah, my guess was always Perry Mason for this one. So you're locking in Perry Mason? Yeah. Yeah, so it was brought back in the, the rebooted in the 70s, then there was a continuation chain of TV movies from the mid-80s to the early 90s, and then a very recent reboot. Yeah, the creator is Earl Stanley Gardner and the influential TV show. It basically invented a genre that's still around today, the courtroom drama TV series, and a lot of people don't know that its showrunner was a woman, Gail Patrick Jackson. It's Perry Mason. Very uh, influential in terms of crossword construction, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, Tucker and Marcus to steal from Tom. The official laws of cricket are the custodial property of an organization known as MCC that owns and maintains Lord's Cricket Ground. Although the current home of Lord's is in St. John's Wood. I don't know if that's St. John's Wood or whatever. The club itself is named for what London neighborhood whose Portman estate was the original site of Lord's? This neighborhood also contains Wimpole Street, as in the Barretts of Wimpole Street, and Baker Street, home to the fictional residence of Sherlock Holmes. And yes, I'm basically asking you what the M in MCC stands for. Um, I'm not good with London neighborhoods. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm basically just trying to think of soccer teams that start with M but aren't Manchester-based right now. <laughs> um... Meverton. Liverpool. <laughs> yeah. It's probably, yeah, if it's a, also a soccer team, it's probably one of the teams that's always in the middle or close to relegation. I mean, I, I've i read some Sherlock Holmes. I, I feel like they must have referenced the neighborhood in some of the stories I've read. It's been a long time, so I don't really remember. Is Mulberry like a neighborhood? I know that's more of like a street name over here, but we have like London neighborhoods are named for streets in like New yeah. England, the colonies and things like that uh, never heard of that as a neighborhood but i like i said i'm not an extra on london neighborhoods or yeah i mean I, i'm mostly just trying to think of m words that could possibly be london neighborhoods i know i've heard mulberry in conjunction with london before i'm not sure exactly in what context but yeah <laughs> not my area of expertise here either yeah yeah you have anything london-ish that stands out to you I know there's a club that's, like I've said, is pretty bad and Premier League never contends for a championship that starts with an M, but I can't pull it. Probably not right. Middlesbrough? Is that what you're thinking of? No, but... Okay. <laughs> They're not good either, so... <laughs> Mulberry. You seem pretty... Want to go Mulberry or Manchester? Is Manchester too obvious? I don't think they would name the neighborhood after the, like, the city outside. Oh, but... yeah. Yeah. Um... So, Mulberry's a good guess to any. I, I really don't have anything here. All right. Then we'll, we'll lock in Mulberry. All right, you locked in Mulberry. Tom? I think, Marcus, you might have been thinking of Millwall is the other London club that's not any good, but this is Marlebone, spelled Mary Le Bon. I was going to say, I'm glad I have an Englishman here to pronounce it correctly, because I don't think I would have gotten that. <laughs> Even after yeah, living in England for about nine months, their pronunciations just, I mean, I lived right across the street from Maudlin College, which is spelled M-A-G-D-A-L-E-N. <laughs> Uh, but yes, that's correct. And now Tom and Tucker to steal from Marcus. In the 2000 King of the Hill episode, Moving On Up, 
Luann gets fed up with Hank's rules and moves out of the Hills' home, only to end up with three irresponsible housemates. In a bit of stunt casting, those three housemates are played by three cast members of what live-action sitcom that ended its run in 1999? A fourth member of the cast of this sitcom was already a part of the regular voice cast of King of the Hill. Okay, so King of the Hill voices would be Mike Judge, Pamela Adlon, Brittany Murphy, who I believe was Luann. Was Pamela Adlon on a sitcom in the 90s? I feel like Brittany Murphy's a better lead. That name's familiar. Uh, I could have missed this part of her career. I think she was doing mostly movies at the time, but I mean, that doesn't really make much of a difference for like a fledgling star at the time, I guess. So live action sitcom that ended its run in 99. Here's a thought. Stephen Root had a was in the main cast of King of the Hill. He also was in a live action sitcom that ended in 1999 called News Radio, which is actually a great show, by the way. I'm gonna plug News Radio. Please watch it. It's amazing. Um, but uh, yeah, that sticks out in my mind because that ended the year. Yeah, that ended the year after Phil Hartman died, and he died in 1998. So the timing lines up. Stephen Root was definitely in the cast of the show. I could easily see like. It was like Andy Dick and Joe Rogan were on news radio, and I could definitely see them being the stunt casting here. So I'd never even heard of King of the Hill until you mentioned it in the last question, so <laughs> I'm very happy to go with that answer. Okay. <laughs> I'm confident that I won't come up with something better. Uh, right. So uh, we'll lock in news radio. All right, yeah. Now, King of the Hill is a great show, especially the early to middle season, so you really should watch it. But yeah, R.I.P. Phil Hartman, News Radio, is the correct answer. And rather than saying who the three guest stars in that episode were, I will quickly throw this to Marcus for a bonus. Can you name all three? Oh, boy. I don't remember this plot point, King of the Hill, a lot, but I'm glad you plugged it before I did, because I was going to do the same thing. Like, Tucker did. I totally plugged King of the Hill. I think it's just hilarious, but yeah, I think I'm just going the same route that he was going. He kind of gave me a couple names, and I haven't seen news radio, so I'm trying to pull names other than Joe Rogan and Andy Dick have great voices for animation, so I, I think those are a good first two to take a stab. It makes no sense, but I think Maura Tierney was on that show, so I'll say that's the third. They had a female roommate. All right. So, yeah, I mean, I could definitely see Joe Rogan as an annoying character, much as he is in real life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but he actually was not in this episode. The other two you had, Andy Dick and Maura Tierney, were correct. The third, going back to the redheads, Vicky Lewis. Mm. All right. Next question for Tom and Marcus to steal from Tucker. Mary Ramsey, who formed half of the folk rock duo John and Mary with John Lombardo, became... Around 1995, the second, and by far the second most famous, lead vocalist for what alternative rock act? So... Alternative rock in 95. Someone left the band or died, and so then she came in to replace that person. Yeah, probably. You think it's also a woman? I mean, the, the most famous vocalist would be... I would I would probably think so, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say that's certain. So, um, rock act with a female lead singer about that time. Like garbage. Someone replaced Shirley Manson, who's I think the the famous one. Yeah, I mean this almost implies that that person like was a really big star. So I mean I guess, I guess it depends on what you're calibrating to. Yeah, maybe the replacement for Courtney Love and Hole. 
I think that's great. Because I was, the date, I was thinking of like Nirvana, but obviously they didn't like go on without him. Courtney Love, I think, was around with Hole later, if I remember correctly. So I'm not sure if that's right or else. I mean, that doesn't necessarily rule it out. Because if like there was a first singer and then that's Mary right. Lombardo and then Courtney Love, she could Mary Lombardo could be the second and second most famous. It's true. Yeah, I, I could be getting the order wrong. I'm I'm kind of thinking this Lombardo, uh, Mary Ramsey um, replaced, but it could be the other way around where Mary Ramsey was replaced. I think we'll come up with anything better than whole. Just thinking of the other like the Cranberries, um, the Pretenders. You know, replacing yeah. Chrissy Hind. One of like think, sorry, go ahead. No, I just kinda of think the pretenders folded with Chrissy Hind. Yogesh smiled, so is that a clue? <laughs> I was more just thinking back to the idea of garbage without Shirley Manson. What would that even be? Yeah. Just Butch Vig in the studio. Just produced <laughs> something. <laughs> something to do with a Fleetwood Mac offshoot like Stevie Nicks or... I don't know any other group she was in though. Um it's like Melissa Etheridge in a group or something. I don't know. I don't think so. I think Hall's a decent shout. Although yeah, I'm still annoyed that we didn't get Perry Mason last time, having said it. Yeah. Hole, you think? Want to just go with that? All right, sure. Let's do it. Lock in with Hole, Yogesh. All right. Yeah, I was wondering if someone would go in with Hole. That is a very good guess, but I'll pass it to Tucker. So I was thinking about a female-fronted indie rock band whose hits were more mid-90s, maybe late, or early 90s, maybe late 80s, definitely with like a folk rock influence. And there's one I thought of whose singer had a breakout solo album that came out in 95-ish, maybe 96. I was actually listening to them this past week, so it's been on my mind. So my guess is going to be 10,000 Maniacs, with the most famous lead singer being Natalie Merchant. And does that connect in any way to one of your other categories? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> horror movies do tend to have 10,000 maniacs in them. So, <laughs> In particular, Herschel Gordon Lewis made a movie called 2,000 Maniacs, which was the inspiration oh. <laughs> for that band's name. And 10,000 Maniacs is the correct answer. Oh, good. <laughs> Let's go to the next question. That's going to be Tucker and Marcus now to steal from Tom. For cricket questions. <laughs> All right. Turning now to Austrian Formula One drivers who are not Jock and Rint. Believe it or not, there were a few. Uh, the 2013 movie Rush depicts how the legendary Niki Lauda was on his way to the 1970s, well, on his way to earning the 1976 championship when he suffered a near fatal crash, taking him out of action just long enough for British racer James Hunt to just barely accumulate enough points to claim the championship himself. So Lauda's accident took place on the notorious north loop of a Grand Prix track in what nation? And I've translated the name it's usually known by into English to call it north loop. It's usually known by that name in the original language. All right. Thanks for the clarification. That is somewhat of a hint, although it's not going to be much of one to me specifically. So let's think of like race track nations. We're aware of Italy because that was earlier. Yeah. And then Monaco that, Grand Prix. Monaco, yeah. I would imagine that France would, Germany yeah. certainly, and uh, nations where English is not the first language too, I assume, so that takes most of the UK and Ireland out of the picture. Yeah. Um, Maybe like uh, Netherlands? Yeah, Netherlands, I was thinking like there's probably one in like 
There must be one in Luxembourg, I think, but I could be wrong. I'm not a huge F1 fan, as you probably gleaned. <laughs> so, maybe yeah. Germany, maybe? Um, yeah. It could be Finland. They have some Formula One racers. That's another one to add to the board. I don't know if they have, like, a Helsinki. No, I think there is a Helsinki Grand Prix, now that I think about it. But that's neither here nor there, because I'm not very confident about that being <laughs> the setting for this. rest of Scandinavia there, Sweden... Norway, uh, don't believe Norway does. I wouldn't know either way on Sweden. Um, Let's see. Oh, Austria must have. Yeah, I was thinking Austria, too. But Austria is the nationality of the drivers and racers in question. So, yeah, it's probably not Austria. So let's see. If we can eliminate, like, just on guessing, like, Austria and Italy. Yeah, I think that's fair. Not the UK. So that, that leaves us with about, like, five-ish reasonable guesses i feel i don't know something tells me it's probably not monaco either so do you want to go a little more north in europe yeah i think that's fair that might be it well i don't yeah i I just really wish i'd watched rush i never saw that movie yeah i didn't see it either so that probably would have helped (laughs) what are you thinking are you thinking a larger country or a smaller one i really have no knowledge but i'm thinking i guess i'm thinking bigger but i okay do you want to try Germany then? They must have multiple Grand Prix and several great F1 drivers yeah, I, came from. So. Solid guess, different language. Yeah. 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 If we're going for a larger country too, I feel like that one's statistically most likely. So. Yeah. All right, we'll go with Germany. All right, you're locking in Germany? Yes. Yeah. Tom, is that correct? The, uh, the Nordschleife at the Nürburgring. Is yeah, it's in Germany. But F one's a bit more international than you give it credit for. There's race in Japan and in Abu Dhabi, Bahrain, China. They used to race in South Africa. So they're not all in Europe, but this one is. Yeah. <laughs> and you should yeah. go with the rush. It helped our regional thinking here. How international was the seventies, out of curiosity. Sorry? How international was the sport or like multicontinental, I guess, in the seventies? Probably less so than today, but it still was. So they've been racing in Brazil for ages, Mexico. Mm -hmm. All right. So I didn't think I was going to have to use this bonus, but I will quickly direct it at Tom. Shortly before his championship season, Hunt had a whirlwind courtship and marriage with supermodel Susie Miller, who soon left him and broke up what famous couple? Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. Yes. She broke up the second marriage of Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. I was going to ask which one. (laughs) All right. Now, Tom and Tucker to steal from Marcus. This may fall a little more into Tucker's wheelhouse than Marcus would like, but oh well. Since its inception, the National League Rookie of the Year Award has been dominated by a single franchise, the Dodgers, who won it four years in a row from 1979 to 82 and five times in a row from 92 to 96. So here's a question. Which Dodgers pitcher and veteran of the Negro Leagues won the National League Rookie of the Year Award in 1949, the first year it was separated from the American League's corresponding award. In 1956, he won the first ever Cy Young Award, back when it was only given to one pitcher across the entire major leagues, and he was the National League's MVP that season as well. All right, I'm like 95% sure, but I just want to see the text of the question first. All right, I'm just going to go on mute here because uh, that's how useful I'm going to be, so... Okay. Um, National League rookie is Yeah, I, I don't see who else it could be except for Don Newcomb. So is that what you're locking in? Uh, yeah. The Dodgers didn't have many great pitchers who came from the Negro leagues, and he certainly was 
a Cy Young winner. So I'll lock in Don Newcomb. All right. Yeah. And that is correct. And I'll quickly direct a bonus to Marcus. In 2011, who became the first American League player to repeat Don Newcomb's feat of winning the Rookie of the Year MVP and Cy Young Awards over the course of his career? Oh, trying to think of Ale Pitcher's the one that, yeah, I think I got it. It's, uh, I think it's Justin Verlander. All right. Yeah. 2006 Rookie of the Year, 2011 MVP and Cy Young. It is Mr. Kate Upton, Justin, <laughs> Justin Verlander. Mr. Trash Can these days. Still out over the Astros. I'm a bitter Yankees fan. I oh, apologize. Oh, and let us tell a story. My first, you'll guess that I put three sports categories. I totally went all in with where I'm fans of. So I went Dodgers, Lakers, and Raiders. So I'm a big Dodger fan. So you can believe how I feel about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, go Braves. That's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah. Go National League from my perspective. <laughs> That's how I am, too. I. Rays versus... Oh, I do like the Rays, so it's going to be tough. Whoever for it. Can I come off mute yet? <laughs> <laughs> In fact, uh, you may want to go back on, because we're now coming to Tucker being stolen from, which means another baseball question. So, Tom and Marcus now to steal from Tucker. Washington State alum Scott Hatterberg, go Cougs, is best known nowadays for his portrayal by Chris Pratt in the movie Moneyball. But he first entered the record books due to a somewhat freak occurrence on August 5th, 2001, while playing for the Boston Red Sox. In a game against the Texas Rangers, he became the only batter in Major League Baseball history to perform what negatively valenced offensive feat in one at-bat, followed by what positively valenced offensive feat in the next at-bat. By offensive, I mean committed while playing for the offensive team, not that the feat itself offended people. (laughs) And it was offensive. (laughs) <laughs> all right so yeah so i need two answers here basically what did he do in those two consecutive at bats um, i'm all over this question i remember it when it happened and fun fact about this is randy velarde actually caught the ball for the triple play and he uh is one of the, there's like 18 people who ever had an unassisted triple play and he's actually he was actually one of them so it's a fun fact tying him to triple play lore <laughs> but yeah scott hatterberg the negative thing he did was he hit into a triple play and the positive thing he did was he hit a grand salami, as uh, the kids like to say, a grand slam, driving in four runs at once. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I remember that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tom is racking up. He racked up 12 points on those baseball questions. It's really showing you how much he knows about baseball. <laughs> All right. And so we're moving to the penultimate question of the game. So now Tucker and Marcus to steal from Tom. You all should have seen this coming, a question about my favorite figure from the Roman Republic era, Cleopatra's badass sister who dealt Julius Caesar a humiliating defeat in a battle at the Pharos of Alexandria before being sold out by her own sexist subordinates and sent to the Romans in exchange for her ineffectual brother, Ptolemy XIII. Caesar had her imprisoned in the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus. During the power struggles following his assassination, Cleopatra pressured Mark Antony into violating the temple's code of sanctuary in order to have her sister executed. Name her. And you don't need a regnal number. The name is enough. Uh, I need to see this question to even have a chance. (laughs) (laughs) Gonna be honest, don't think it's gonna help me. (laughs) Yeah, I just had a chance, but I I agree. I mean, sister of only the 13th is one of those... Trivia facts I'll probably want to remember, so I'm happy you're asking this question, even if I'm very unlikely to get any points out of it. Yeah, I don't. I think this might be the quickest taking the L. I don't know. Nothing in here rings the bell. Yeah, I, Cassandra was not. I mean, I don't think so, but I don't have a guess. So. 
Yeah, that name popped in my head for some reason, so I just want to go with that, Tucker. I get this over yeah. with. Yep. <laughs> I'm not coming up with anything better. Cassandra. Cassandra was definitely a character who was not valued as much as she should have been, so probably this person felt an affinity with her. But Tom? Oh, no, I don't, I don't know this. I feel like I definitely should, but I can't remember it. Cleopatra had a son with Caesar called Caesarion. The fact that you said don't need a regnal number implies that that might be a way into it. That it's just a random, like, Ptolemaic name. Um, what I meant by that was that she did have a regnal number, but I'm not requiring you to supply it. Right. So there was someone else with the name, hopefully. Well, if there was someone else famous with the name, I would have asked you for the number. Uh Okay. There goes that clear. <laughs> uh, vaguely Greek sounding name. Nah, I think I think this is might have to let the snake bite me here. Um I'll say Hi-oh. Olympia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the asp caught up with you. Yeah. Yeah, Olympia. So was what, Alexander the Great's mother was Olympias? That- That's exactly what I was going for. <laughs> Okay, yeah. Yeah, so this figure, I mean, since I've been promoting her, I've been hoping to see her start coming up in quizzes, but there was one Drunk History episode about her, which I was happy to see, because someone else is paying attention. But um, hopefully, if I have anything to say about it, there will be more questions about her with quizzes in the future, so you're getting in early. But her name was Arsinoe, or Arsinoe IV. All right, and uh, now... Of Arsenio Hall. <laughs> Yes. That question had us asking, who, 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 who? That's a very bad joke. Thank you for putting up with me. <laughs> I was I trying to... I, I fed it to you. I ran up Arsenio. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to come up with a joke along those lines, but yours was better than what I would have come up with. So. Oh, thank you. <laughs> very generous. <laughs> All right. And so we now come... And that yeah, this has been a very high-scoring, super hard around. It hasn't really been that super hard for you guys. So that was the first question to go for zero, I think. And now we're coming up on the last question of the game. So here goes. Tom and Tucker to steal from Marcus. Vox's tepid review of the 2016 movie A Kind of Murder sums it up with the headline, A Kind of Murder tries to be a psychological thriller, but forgets the psychological part, before adding in the subhead, it's not very thrilling either. That film, starring Patrick Wilson as a man suspected of killing his wife and Vincent Carthizer as the persistent police detective putting pressure on him, is based on The Blunderer, the third novel by what author, whose first two novels were both adapted into far more successful and acclaimed movies? Hi, this is Future Yogesh, noting that this is where I should have stopped reading in order to make the question properly challenging. Unfortunately, I kept going. If you are playing along at home, feel free to pause now and attempt to answer. One of those novels is also about an architect suspected of complicity in his wife's murder, although in the famous film version, the protagonist's profession is changed to something far more athletic. Oh, I think I know this, actually. I think that last reference is to strangers on a train when he's an architect in Patricia Highsmith's book and then he's a tennis player in the Hitchcock movie. Yeah, and then So Talented Mr. Ripley was her other book, right? And that was certainly pretty successful and also good. So, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Good pull. Uh, Yeah, I'm double-checking, but yeah, she she definitely wrote psychological thrillers. And... uh, Patrick Wilson just seems like somebody who could play 
every character in a Patricia Highsmith adaptation. Yeah. She also wrote The Price of Salt, which got adapted into Carol, which was, I think, two years earlier. So that might make sense if there was a renewed interest in Patricia Highsmith. So, yeah, I think we can go for that. Thanks for that fact. I never knew that. Carol's an amazing movie, so... (laughs) But yeah, we uh, we should go with Patricia Highsmith here. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, I think this is another one where I put in, well, in this case, too many clues. That last sentence did kind of make it a little easier, obviously, and provide a way in. And yeah, actually, probably if I had to rewrite it, I would have taken that sentence out. But uh, <laughs> nothing I can do about that now. <laughs> All right. So here's something, since I didn't have a bonus for Marcus, but I will throw him a bonus I wrote for an earlier question. When I mentioned Mary Magdalene, the film directed by Garth Davis, and it was his second feature film following the Oscar-nominated Lion. So what Oscar-nominated actress who had a supporting part in Lion played the title role in Mary Magdalene? And this isn't completely irrelevant because it is related to something that Tom and Tucker mentioned during their deliberation. Um, I saw Lion. And the only actress I remember in that movie is the adopted mother of Dev Patel and the other brother I can't remember is, I don't know his actor name, and he's, he has psychological issues, but I don't remember anything about him other than that. The only guess I have is Nicole Kidman. Do you know it? One of you guys know it? Yeah, I knew it from Mary Magdalene, Rooney Mara, right? Yeah, so Dev Patel's character's girlfriend in Lion was played by Rooney Mara. Holy oh, totally forgot her. I can't even place her in the movie. Yeah, it wasn't that memorable of her role or a performance, really, but she was, of course, in the film adaptation of Patricia Highsmith's The Price of Salt, Carol, which she was nominated for an Oscar for, so I decided to bring that pack around. Hi, Future Yogesh again, with a clarification. Patricia Highsmith's second novel was not, in fact, the talented Mr. Ripley. It was The Price of Salt, which she published under the pseudonym Claire Morgan, and which was adapted into the film Carol. All right, and it looks like at the end of this, we have... Marcus getting stolen from, unfortunately, at 30.0, which is actually a good enough score to have won many games on this podcast, but he was just, uh, yeah, blitzed kind of by Tom at 50.1 and Tucker at 61.1. Excellent job from all three of you, though. You all had some great pulls, and we'll now conclude by giving each of you a chance to say anything you'd like. It can be about the game, it can be about the world at large, it can be plugging something of yourself, although with the caveat that this episode will take a while to, to reach <laughs> publication. And yeah, as long as it's not too long or offensive, it will be kept in. And to give you some idea of what I find offensive, I'm probably going to keep in your comment about Amy Comey Barrett. So uh, <laughs> I almost made it kind of that vein where you're talking about the the dangerous cult that that guy was born into. I was going to say the modern Republican Party. (laughs) Subtlety, not one of our strengths in this game. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think anyone has anything to fear from those statements being made public, so. Yeah. (laughs) If you guys have seen my Twitter, uh, (laughs) I'm not scared. But um, so, yeah, to keep the order going. Thanks again for having me on. This is one of my favorite trivia podcasts and probably going up into number one as soon as my episode comes out. Cool, cool. Um, sorry, I had to get one dig again, but really do love the show. Thanks for having me on and uh, great game by my guests too. And uh, thank you guys for having you know levels of knowledge that like relatively overlapped with mine and weren't very you know, straightforward scientific categories or uh, anything that normally gives me a blank stare. As far as anything I'd like to say, uh, I know this may be 
well, this will be coming out after the United States presidential election. So vote in your local elections as well. Once those come up every year, still very important. Please do so. And yeah, your uh, prior episode will be out by next weekend at the latest. I've been listening to all of them recently, and I'm just like, okay, mine has to be soon. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Tom, next. Thanks for having me. It was a great game. This one was more orthodox than last time, where I did terribly on my own categories and then quite well on other people's categories. So also an extra good job to Tucker and Marcus because they didn't get 12 free points on baseball by not knowing anything about baseball. <laughs> if you have any lingering interest in F1 from listening to this, Rush is a great movie and the Netflix docuseries Drive to Survive is worth a watch as well. It's like low effort and quite fun. So uh, yeah, there's an American race. In terms of politics, I just hope that there is a world by the time this ends. That's my uh, optimistic take. By the time this airs is what I meant to say. Would you recommend the, the documentary Senna as well? Oh yeah, that's great. That's a great one. Um, the last word. Yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for having me on. It's a lot more fun than I anticipated. Knowing how much you know Yogesh, I was really afraid this was going to be impossible like your hard impossible quizzes. Uh, <laughs> but that was a lot of fun. And I actually, you know, I told you I was interested a while ago and I actually kind of forgot about this podcast until you said you wanted me on an episode. This is my first one that these guys have been on before, but it was a lot of fun. And I guess give a warning to future episodes that my brother has, my identical twin brother has expressed interest in being on this show. So I don't want people to think that when Jason Luna appears, that it's a desperate attempt at me to be on more episodes and cheat my way onto more episodes. <laughs> Yeah, politics. I'm with these guys. We're a pretty liberal group. Hopefully none of the QAnon theories end up being true. <laughs> now, seriously, though, hopefully by this time we get COVID under control and get a vaccine to people. That'd be great. Thanks, like, thanks again, guys. I'll, I'll be back on if um, you want me. Yeah. If you ever see a Larkus Muna, however, uh, all bets are off there. <laughs> Marcus is going to prestige himself just to be on multiple episodes per season. <laughs> Yeah, I just hope no one wanders into that basement and sees all of the Marcuses inside the yeah. vat. <laughs> Spoilers. Sure. It's like 15 years since that movie. Yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> this has been, what has this been? This has been episode one of season two of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shroud. Thanks for listening.